adventure climbing on the mountainside welcome everyone to the road to survivor series 1992 in the legacy series i think if you've been around long enough uh, if you were to hear a business person say to you we're going through a transition period you might know what that means and i'll just ask you when it, does it mean that they're excited or does it mean they're making an excuse for something if i told you Come on down to Mystic So-and-So Shop. We're going through a transition period. Is that a way to sell a business? Or if I slow walk you into my business and say, well, remember, we're, we're going through a kind of a transition right now. Is it a way to prepare you for something less? Most of us know it's the latter. We say it because things are not where they need to be or they're not where they used to be. And indeed, you can make that argument about the WWF, but you can't make it today because on this Road to Survivor Series 1992, we are going to have three WWF World Champions. We're going to see a changing of the guard at the IC title uh, position. One of my favorite early moments from my childhood, Shawn Michaels will grab his first uh, singles championship. So we're going to see Bret Hart. Randy Savage, Ric Flair at the world title scene. Miz Fan has given us an amazing abundance of moments that will make us feel like it's good to be in a transition period. We will also see one of the best things that happened in the Legacy Series consistently. The Ultimate Warrior will leave the WWF. And we will watch a last-minute prime time that is better than half the stuff you plan for all year long. So get ready, ladies and gentlemen. We are about to do an excellent, uh, excellent dive into this Road to Survivor Series. But we will also start with a transition that is breaking our hearts because as we are recording this, Bobby Eaton has passed away, and we are going to watch Ric Flair versus Bobby Eaton. We're going to talk a little bit about the career of Bobby Eaton. Uh, when I just clicked on YouTube, the Jim Cornette experience, apparently two hours ago, just dropped a two-hour video that it's going to take me a long time to get around to. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, one of my first favorite wrestlers as well, a man who's very outfit. Uh, mystified me. One of the nicest men in the business. We will talk a little bit about Bobby Eaton. Ladies and gentlemen, I am the mystic and I am joined by my friend and co-host by God, my learned colleague. He is Mr. Ms. Fan, the brain. Greetings, Ms. Fan fans. Welcome indeed to WWF The Legacy Series. We're going to have that touch at WCW today because we are going to talk about the great now late Bobby Eaton, one of my absolute favorite wrestlers of all time. We're going to pay some honor to him where he deserves it. We're going to be talking about a match that I had never seen before that I was very glad to finally check out. And then, of course, we do have all that WWF action that my partner has promised you. We have world championships changing hands. We have journeys to Japan where monsters are fighting each other. People are making coffins. Uh, wrestlers are returning. Uh, we, we've got all sorts of amazing stuff to talk about today. So I'm very excited, even if we're starting on a somber note. Mystic, my friend, let's get into it. Absolutely. So just a little quick uh, bio for Bobby Eaton. He was born on August 14th, 1958, passed away on August 4th, 
2021, uh, known especially, of course, for the Midnight Express with Jim Cornette, with Dennis Condry, with Stan Lane. I didn't realize that he also, well, the ones I knew, he also teamed up with Arn Anderson, teamed up with Steve Kern, teamed up with Steve Regal, but he was also teamed up with Coco Beware. So I have some homework to do uh, in my future. But all those tag teams, all those championships, all that. And yet we're going to also prove today that he was a great singles wrestler because um, the richness of when I started watching pro wrestling, I've told this many times on this series, Z-Man had just dropped the belt uh, to Arn Anderson, who would drop it to Bobby Eaton, who would drop it to Stunning Steve Austin. That's the TV title, folks. So uh, there's so much to get into. We'll get into the match. I just real quick want to just shout out this article. I don't know this person, but I just found it right before. And the title caught my attention. And I'll read the last few lines. But the title of this is Bobby Eaton helped perfect the Southern tag team formula. That's a great uh, way kind of to put a frame on it. Apparently, this is Joseph Montesilo. He is a writer from the Philippines uh, where he has been publishing short fiction since 2008. And he ends on uh, Eaton's character, which we've heard a lot about. Stories of Bobby's generosity were commonly recited in the dressing room, writes McFoley. It was damn near impossible to pay for anything when Bobby was around. Bobby Eaton understood that to make wrestling work, one needs to give. It is sacrificing of one's own time, one's body for the entertainment of others. It's selling to make heroes of the men standing across from you. Generosity might be what made Eaton such a great tag wrestler. That is an amazing finish because he talks about earlier that if you watch the matches, Eaton's never hogging the match. He might come out as the star of the match. He might have the best move in the match, but he lets everyone else wrestle their match, and then he comes in as part of it. So I do think Bobby Eaton in many ways was a giver, and I think it transcends his life into his wrestling. Uh, one of the great greats in so many ways, Mr. Bobby Eaton. Yeah, absolutely so. I mean, this man, I, I think the man is just legendary, and it's amazing to now hear all these stories about um, the kind of person he was as well. This is a guy who I think potentially was, uh, you know, one one good promo, uh, one, one ability to be a good promo away from much even bigger things. And, God, everything he already did was legendary, so I think uh, could have done even more. But, my God, I mean... Uh, a while back, there was a thing going around that said, um, you know, talk about 10 wrestlers to know you, you know, not necessarily your top 10 favorite, but just 10 wrestlers. Like, look at this list, and you'll probably know what kind of wrestling fan I am. And, man, you better believe I put Bobby Eaton on that list. This is a, a defining guy for me, just uh, incredible talent and apparently incredible human being, which is uh, so rare to even hear in wrestling, especially nowadays. So I don't think you can pay enough homage to this guy just absolutely incredible so what was it that put him on that list like specifically what defined what was the what was that definition for you oh i mean i don't know if i can wholly articulate it because it's a felt sense sort of thing but i would say if there's one thing for me 
It is the fact that when you watch his matches, you will see the things he does. You will see the punches he throws, which look incredible, which looks like he could dislocate your jaw. You will see him hitting those absurd backbreakers that look like they could rip a man in half. You'll see him hit the Alabama jam, jump up high in the air, come crashing down on somebody's head. He will do all this stuff. It will look incredible. And yet, any wrestler of that era will tell you, if you wrestled Bob Eaton, if you saw his name opposite you on the card for the night, you could breathe a sigh of relief because basically you had the night off. You would not get roughed up at all. You would look good. You would, uh, you know, have, basically everything would go your way. Just to think of that, a guy who understands what I think is maybe the most important thing in pro wrestling, you make it look amazing, but you protect your opponent completely and just do, as you said, be generous, do everything to benefit them. What, what an incredible talent that is. That's above and beyond. You don't really hear that all that often. You don't hear that on the level of Bob Eaton. Maybe not ever. He may be the all time greatest in that respect. So just, just that alone and then you look at all the great things in his career as well, everything he accomplished, the amazing tag teams, the amazing matches, just just the legacy of him. But that, that put him over the top for me. Like, this guy is incredible, and I think everybody ought to aim to be a lot more like Bobby Eaton. My goodness, you're a great guy, man. All I wanted <laughs> you to say was one thing, and you said it. The backbreaker. <laughs> if like, you want to take the backbreaker out of that. there, that's perfect. But it's it's everything as well. I won't. I won't. If you want to appreciate Bobby Eaton today, I want you to go get. We're gonna we're gonna take a cliche and we're gonna make it fresh again. I want you to go get some butter, and the butter cannot be frozen. And I want you to cut through that butter and realize that when you do it, it's as if you're doing nothing. And then I want you to. Have Clash of the Champions paused right before he does the backbreaker and then do the thing with the butter and then watch the backbreaker and just sit back and enjoy Bobby Eaton. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's better. I thought you were going to pull a Dusty Rhodes and say, uh, you know, go get your wife and try a backbreaker on her and see if she says <laughs> that it was like a night off. Um, so you try that as well, but we don't endorse that. So I don't know how he does it. It's like, it is the smoothest wrestling that I've ever seen. Like the neck breaker, the backbreaker. There's no there's no breaking involved. Like you almost have to take it out of the move. And then when I was a kid, I lived in a world where the Alabama Jam was as far as professional wrestling goes. To me, that was like the limit of like a high risk wrestling. You know, it was the Alabama Jam and everything on the way down. Oh, that's amazing. I'm look at it. You know, just go watch that Alabama Jam and think. Think if there are moves today which are more uh, devastating. I don't know if there are. I really don't. It scares me more than like a 4,000-something splash because at least <laughs> you're landing in the splash mode. Like you think about Hulk Hogan and the damage he did on the leg drive. Now, that, something about that top rope and you're going down, like I would always want to break my fall differently. I don't think I could do the Alabama Jam. I, wrestlers have to train their body to land in different ways, certainly. Uh, leg drives in, in general – are amazing. I don't know how you don't blow out your um, hamstring every time you do it. So doing it from the top rope, I mean, that's really something. More praise to Bobby Eaton. 
You also talked about a man who spent his whole career giving, and yeah, he's part of the legendary Midnight Express. He's part of the Dangerous Alliance. He's a tag team star. He's a TV champion. So to do nothing but give and still be honored in all those ways just talks about how good you are in the ring. Sure, yeah. If you're too giving in wrestling, you might end up, uh, you know, just doing jobs your whole life. But here's a guy with so much success and uh, so much respect from his peers. And one of my favorite stories I've seen going around is um, Bill Dundee was, uh, you know, a major force down in uh, Memphis. His daughter told him that she was dating a wrestler and he was furious he was just just absolutely out of his mind she would do this and then she told him it was bobby eaton and then he calmly sat back down to dinner and said oh well you picked the right one then oh my god (laughs) that's amazing that's you're not gonna get a better testimony than that (laughs) oh my Uh, gosh man this this is good so uh it also hit me i think a discussion in the forums that you know, Bobby Eaton was for the last, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven years, pretty much enhancement talent. Yet, mm. even doing that, you know, as the Earl of Eaton, as many other things, like so good in what he does. So even in his last years, putting people over, but still, you know, highly talented while doing it. Absolutely. In my WCW watching, I've seen him at least in 98. It's always a pleasure to see him. I've seen clips of him even later than that. Still doing good work, and I think it's unfortunate. He probably came around at the worst time to have like a, a valid career into his um, older years. I think in a lot of other times, he could have gone even farther um, you know, in, into those years, but uh, it was not to be in a time when everything was kind of changing so quickly, a different kind of transition period where uh, folks maybe had already as much of the old folks as they wanted to have. So um, it's a shame, but still, like, the great work is out there, and you can find it, and I don't think you can really say credibly a bad thing against Seton's career. I think we might be able to change it because I have a request of the gods. I don't know if it will be honored, but we're doing a tribute, so it would be nice if it is. How about Jeff Jarrett is a jobber in WCW called the Earl of Nashville, and um, Bobby Eaton is a tag team champion in the mid-90s with Owen Hart. God, what a beautiful request. Is that what you're sending up to the gods? Yes. Ooh, gods should listen. That's some good advice right there. And I'm not even going to get into it because this is um, Bobby Eaton's tribute and not Owen Hart's, but there is at least one rumor that you know Owen Hart was the blue blazer because he would not do an angle where he's having an affair with Deborah. Well, guess what? If it's Owen and Bobby, there's no Deborah either. So, <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's, um, <laughs> I can see some real similarities between Owen and, uh, and Bobby Eaton though. Yes. That's very interesting. I think, uh, they're, they're uniquely talented individuals and could have, could have been very fun together. Absolutely. I think this is the last thing I will say because I love the era I grew up in. And partly, I like the containers, you know. But yet, I think one thing is good. Like sometimes we get mad at the new eras because oh, they're doing so many different things. But like one thing that you said, Bobby never had a bigger push because like oh, he sounds like he's got marbles in his mouth. He can't do a great promo. Right. I think in this era, you could find a way to make his marbled mouth Southern style part of why he gets a push. <laughs> I but mean, back, uh, you just don't do that back then. Yeah, yeah. They didn't really ever 
try to get around it. And also, I mean, this is a Bobby Eaton tribute show, so, I, you know, love the guy. If you hear a promo, like, you'll understand why. Like, it's not good. <laughs> but, um, man, if, if they had made some effort to get around that somehow... And, you know, that's what Cornette was for, you know, and other things. Yep. So it's not like they never did anything. But, man, yeah, I agree. Nowadays, I think, who knows what they could do with a guy like Bobby Eaton. I mean, the sky's the limit, I think. Yeah, and, and you could make him a baby face. But, like, again, if you if it's all about the promo, just keep Cornette or someone else as his manager. Because part of what I'm going to argue as we go into, like, the two out of three fall Clash of the Champions 15, uh, Ric Flair defending the belt against Bobby Eaton, is that Bobby Eaton had a manager. He may well have walked out of that match as world champion. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very, very possibly. He was right on the edge there. Ooh, I'm excited to talk about that. Yes, this is an excellent one. I love WCW at this time, hearing that uh, Bobby Eaton's 235 pounds from Huntsville, Alabama, ranked number four in the world. Like, that is just, <laughs> ah, it's, it, it's a sandwich from 1991 that I can still sink my teeth into. Uh, that's a nice, uh, a nice point right there. It's a weird time in WCW. They talk here at Ric Flair. Oh, he's got to get to the, uh, great American bash to defend against Lex Luger. We, of course we know that is not going to happen, but, mm. um, yeah, it, it's a strange time, but God, you put Ric Flair and Bobby Eaton together and man, that'll tell you something right there. Like what else do you need in your life? That's what I ask you. Yes, that's a great point. I think it's a strange world that we live in because whether you're watching wrestling in 1990, 1991, or 2020, 2021, you can hear Tony and Jim Ross on commentary together. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. But we have the AEW Dynamite team, uh, two-thirds of them here on commentary. So how interesting. I didn't even think of them being together. I didn't think they even liked each other at this time, but... I guess that doesn't necessarily matter. Yeah, they do a good job here. They do a fine job. It's a great, you know, we, we, we like to see the authenticity a lot. So I think we forget how good of actors these guys are. But <laughs> um, I will have some Scott Hall, Ric Flair stories as we go on that help support your point there, my friend. Ooh, uh, I don't even know what that will be. I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to that. So this one here, the first thing I wrote down is signature chop versus signature right. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. Um, just just the best moments in this match, perhaps, are Ric Flair laying those chops in. And I got to say, like, the the, the Ric Flair, he's got his chops where he'll, like, put you in the corner and wind up and chop you. That's all fine. You know, he's a good chopper in any circumstance. But, like, frantic chopping Flair where he's, like, giving it and getting something back and going back. Like, that is great. And you couldn't get something better back than the punches of Bobby Eaton, which I just have to praise as absolute all-timers. Like, he just clocked the hell out of flair at times mm. here, and it looked amazing. I could watch that kind of stuff all day. Yes. And I think it's also something that the Bret Hart's of the world don't get when they critique Ric Flair, that sometimes even when he's doing the same thing, the tone and mood and desperation, like... It's completely different, even as it's the same thing, because of the, the nature of the opponent, the match, the situation, and what's gone down before and after it. Oh, indeed. I mean, as much as we have praised Bret Hart uh, two weeks ago, um, as much as we will praise him, I mean, uh, I don't really have much respect for his critique of guys like Flair. I think it's pretty clear that this is stuff that's born out of uh, a certain bitterness that he's not been able to escape. And, you know, maybe even 
came by it honestly with everything that happened to him, but that doesn't mean I have to uh, give it credibility. I will I will have something to say to that and when we do WrestleMania nine, but you know, we'll wait for that. <laughs> all right, all right. This is a weird night for me, we'll jump into it later, but I I think it's a night where I have some praise for Brett and some praise for Flair and some praise for Savage and some moments where I'm like, ah, you know, not the best thing I've ever seen, but <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's fair as well. I think the best thing I have ever seen is just a little short sequence in this match because Bobby Eaton drops down so Flair can uh, run over him and Flair doesn't do it. He outsmarts him and just stops in front of him, which you rarely see a heel do that to a baby face. But it makes sense because Flair is like super smart and Bobby Eaton is new to the singles division. And then they get up and they start wrestling and punching and you think the sequence is over. And then Flair drops down, and they run the ropes, and Bobby Eaton does not go over him, but elbows him. So it returns all the way back to that original sequence. That is great. I love the dynamic of this. For a guy like Flair, who, especially by 91 in WCW, um, we've talked about how like he kind of made a formula with Luger, and then he just kind of repeated it with Sting, and it was pretty lazy, to be honest. And, uh, you know, even the truth of, of Bret Hart's critique that Ric Flair can be very repetitive and just go through his spots. How nice is it to see a match like this where it's worked very differently? Yeah. Like, this is a very different kind of match than a lot of the challenges I've seen from Ric Flair. And just the nuances of it are really, really fun to see. And I wonder if that's a compliment to Flair or Bobby Eaton. I don't, you would think Flair controls the match, but man. We're going to see Randy Savage on a bad knee trying to military press Ric Flair. So even like the savages of the world get dragged into the Lex Luger match. You know, oh, yeah. I don't know why Bobby Eaton didn't, but I'm glad it didn't happen. It's interesting with Bobby Eaton. I, I don't know how to regard him sometimes because I've heard and I don't know all the details of this. So if I'm wrong about anything, forgive me. But I've heard that WWE, uh, after WCW shut down, they wanted to bring in Bobby Eaton to be a trainer which sounds like a great idea, but after just a few weeks, they had to say it's just not working because Bobby Eaton was such an instinctual wrestler that he could not explain to to rookies, to new trainees, any of his techniques, any of how he did what he did. So you take a guy like Bobby Eaton, who is so great, apparently by instinct, not even by something he can articulate, and you put him in with Ric Flair, who can be lazy, but who also can be the greatest of all time, and I don't know, you just get something amazing, apparently. So, I don't know, I think these two guys are very instinctual together. When you get two instincts that match up like this, I think you just get something great. I have never heard that story, but I believe it with 100% uh, truth. Mm, mm. Yeah. That that mm, that's tr- that's a true story. It's got to be, and <laughs> it breaks my heart though because like yeah, I, I don't know how to say this, but like yeah, I, I spent six years in graduate school, and we are the graduate school way is that you don't know how to do anything, you don't know how to think, you don't know how to teach until you read articles and choose what family you know what lens you use. And then all of a sudden you can do things because you're going through the theory, through the lens to do the thing. And I have always been the opposite of that. Like, I will have an instinct in the classroom and do it, and it makes no sense to me even why I'm doing it. And then if I ever figure out that it works, then I I end up finding things that support it. But it goes the opposite way. So, And you can get belittled for that a lot. And, they may, and I wonder... 
it was there a way? I feel like you can get people into their instinctuals and they can still learn. So I don't know if there was a way for Bobby Eaton to do that. Probably not in that world. But like it would not hurt my feelings if they had a trainer whose only job was to help people to get into their instincts in the WWF. But they don't like people in their instincts because they want WWF brand to be the star. So I don't think that would have gone over well. <laughs> right. Yeah, there are all sorts of barriers there. But uh, any barrier to Bobby Eaton is a bad barrier. I think we all know that. Yeah, man, I love the end of the first fall. The, the sequence of that back break. Watch that backbreaker if you don't watch anything else. God, God, I don't know if the I don't know if Flair's doing it or Eaton's doing it. I swear to you, Flair's not doing it and Eaton's not doing it. It is the... It's like a cartoon level lift, but watch the back breaker followed up by the neck breaker followed up by the Alabama jam and the three count and Bobby Eaton is one fall away from becoming the heavyweight champion. It's a beautiful sequence and uh, it's a dominant win of that first fall. If you were watching as a young fan, perhaps who was not quite savvy to uh, the politics, you could think, man, Bobby Eaton, how can you stop him? He's going to go right over Ric Flair here. We know a little better in our cynical old age, but man, I'll just say this whole match, I absolutely love this match. I think this is a classic. I've not seen it before. It's funny. I hear folks, you know, looking up this match. I'm like, oh, it was good, but it was really too rushed. They didn't have enough time left. And I'm like, okay, 15 minutes maybe is a little short for a two out of three falls match, but just watch the match. Watch the pace they set. Watch the way the falls come about, like, every bit of it. Like, there's no disconnect with me. Uh, You know, God, like, it would have been longer. I wouldn't have been mad. I would have been happy. But, God, I think it was just about damn perfect the way it was. Imagine living long enough to see a world where people are too smart to watch Ric Flair and Bobby Eaton. (laughs) (laughs) What a time. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. You're right about that. It doesn't have to be. It's also, this is a... I just complimented this generation for being able to take weaknesses <laughs> or things that might otherwise be pushed out and then make it make it actually a part of the gimmick in a good way. But now to go the other way, like every match doesn't need to top every match that's come before it. Like to me, part of the beauty of this match is that it doesn't go longer and it doesn't do all these things because I think what you have is a somewhat nervous and inexperienced Bobby Eaton, who's also an amazing instinctual wrestler. And like when he gets in his groove, he can beat Ric Flair for the world title. But the minute he's not in that groove, like Ric Flair is going to expose him. So if this was their fifth time wrestling for the world title, I would agree. But this is, these are the things that we're going to talk about. Like when the one, two, three kid beats Razor Ramon, Mm -hmm. like, you have to know the psychology and the reality of the situation. And in the reality, Bobby Eaton is way outside his league, even being in this match, just simply because he doesn't have singles experience. And so, you know, to me, it makes all the sense in the world that when Bobby Eaton is in the zone, you get a fall like fall one. But then you're going to, like I said, he needs a manager because he's going to make some mistakes. They're just going to expose him. And Flair's not going to wrestle 30 minutes with a guy who just started wrestling singles and is exposing himself by making like really bad choices. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, great point there. Um, and I will just say God save us from every wrestling match needing to be long. One of my least favorite things about that latest generation that you have been talking about. I love it because, Oh man, it also makes you want more. So like if the, in good booking, Bobby Eaton would then return to the fact that, I was both good enough to almost beat Ric Flair 
And also, I was completely exposed by Ric Flair. Like, what do I need to do now to start building my way up? And that's why you got the ranking. Then you got him winning the TV title and you got all these opportunities. Mm-hmm. So in the psychology and the story of it, you know, it makes sense. If you're just talking about athletic performance and could they have had a longer one or a better one? Sure, they could. And probably everyone always could. But do they always need to is a question. Right. Right. Perfectly said. So there's going to be a lot of mistakes. Like I said, I've watched enough Lex Luger versus Ric Flair to know what happens when you hurt your knee in a match with Ric Flair. And that's just about the most unfortunate thing that can happen. <laughs> and and it's uh, something that Ric Flair often causes to happen. So, yep. you know, by no means an accident. It's very strategic, and I appreciate that as well. And I love this as well because oh, as soon as, like, the like in the second fall, Bobby Eaton, all he wants to do is hit that Alabama jam again, and that goes to what you were saying is that here's a guy who, like, he could make mistakes. You know, this is not the the scenario that he's normally in. So to go so doggedly for this move when Ric Flair is not really down, he's not really prepared to receive it. It's going to end up with you falling on the floor, hitting your knee on the concrete, and uh, ultimately that's going to be all she wrote for you. So it's some very strong psychological stuff and i really appreciate that yeah it is not it's the absolute thing not to be doing and it's also the only thing you would be like if, if i just pinned rick flair for the first fall in the world title match with the alabama jam i'm probably trying to hit the alabama jam again yeah hell yeah absolutely so it, it makes total sense and yet you can see as he does it kind of where he makes the mistakes i love that sequence where like he, he knocks Ric Flair down. He's trying to go up. Ric Flair's getting up. He, like, goes back. He knocks him down again. He's trying to go up again. But Ric Flair, he's just not down enough. He, mm-hmm. he is, like, rushing through to get to his finisher, and it really ends up costing him. And I think that's such a great psychological moment that I really appreciate it. Oh, I love that because it's also Ric Flair is so good that I don't think he came out and said, like, I want to get pinned by the Alabama Jam and fall one and go down three to two, one, zero. But once it's over, I do believe that the strategy starts being try to get him to do that again. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, you got caught by it once, but, you know, it's Ric Flair, so he's watching. He sees a kind of a vulnerability, and he's going to exploit it. So, you know, that's um, that's really good stuff. Yeah, and this is also what I mean by the, the reason I'm okay with the match being what it is, because Ric Flair down 0-1 is still ultimately more confident, confident in this match than Bobby Eaton up 1-0. Yeah, yeah, very true. And if I am the manager of Bobby Eaton in the third fall, and he's got the bad knee, and now he's trying to superplex Ric Flair, I am jumping up on the apron and stopping him physically if I have to. <laughs> Right, yeah, that's where the manager really comes into effect, like you were saying. I I can totally see that. And that's, you know, it's like you said, though, he's trying to end it. He's going for high risk. He's going for power moves, but you've messed up your knee. Ric Flair's going to put him into figure four, and it's not going to stop him. And this is also kind of cool, I think, that then Ric Flair's going to have to put him into figure four a second time, use the ropes, and he's finally going to get the victory. He's going to get a pinfall victory with the figure four, but it's, it's not going to be an easy one. But yet... It's, it's almost impossible to explain that sometimes the best thing can, that can happen is what you expect to happen. Like, make me think for a moment it's not going to happen. But then for the greater storytelling of longevity, it still has to happen. Because at this moment, Bobby Eaton is just not ready to get this victory. Like he's ready to be the TV champion. But by God, can he come close to beating Ric Flair? Indeed. 
reversing expectation or, uh, God forbid, swerving every time we have seen is not effective in the long run. You have to, I think, play your stories out logically the majority of the time. Otherwise, you know, that's what allows you to be unexpected at times is that you are expected most of the time. So, yes, you would expect Ric Flair to be Bobby Eaton. Yes, you would especially expect it after he got that knee injury. But, man, like, just look at it. Look at the way it played out, and and you will see, I think, the uh, usefulness, the quality of letting things play out the way they are meant to. Absolutely. It's called building credibility for the long haul, Mm, and it matters. And also... I know that we, none of us, and I include myself in this, we live in a world where we can just kind of get what we want anytime and get it really quick. And it's hard to explain even to our own selves that we don't really want our entertainment like that, even though we tell ourselves we do. <laughs> it's um, It can be hard to believe, you know, depending on uh, how you like your entertainment. But, yeah, I would definitely have to agree with that. I've never thought this thought until right, right now saying that. I don't regret the three to four years of Lex Luger chasing Ric Flair and not being able to beat him. I only regret that he did not get to beat him in 91. Mm. Yeah, well, we've been over Lex Luger too many times. We're going to do it again soon, so I'm going to just leave that there for now. And uh, you can decide out there if you agree or not. But you ought to because we're going to talk more about it as we go forward. So we are on the road to Survivor Series 1992. Um, this is Flair, not that long after the Bobby Eaton matchup. So I was just gonna say, yeah, a lot of Flair on this set, and from uh, from one place to another, um, it's amazing. Like he was great in the Bobby Eaton match. I can't say anything against him, but I think back in general on Ric Flair in 1991 in WCW, and then compared to what we've seen, and man, he really seemed highly rejuvenated when he came over to the WWF. And I think that is still in effect now as we're watching this. Well, that was Flair had already had his fourth haircut and they were trying to turn him into more things to come. So <laughs> I don't think he was at his uh, most confident uh, at that time. No, I would not think so. Yeah. So this is nine fourteen ninety two when we're starting out. Uh, Randy Savage is our heavyweight champion. He is going to talk to Gene Oakland and he's going to get a visit. From Razor Ramon. <laughs> but before this, this is a very strange interview, and it really makes me kind of wonder what the hell they were doing, because this mm. interview is supposed to be about Randy Savage, but he is all talking about the Ultimate Warrior. He is praising him. He's saying at SummerSlam, it was my toughest match ever, which it isn't, because you won the match and you've lost matches to Warrior before, so I bet that one was tougher. Um, and he says Warrior is as much part of the world title as he is. And Jesus, Randy, why don't you just take that title and give it away to somebody, for God's sake, because you are not talking like a champion in this moment. Yeah, this is it's entirely garbage, uh, the whole Ultimate Warrior. Like he said, it's the toughest match of my whole career. It's not It's not, It's not. not top 50. It's probably not top 100. This, it's it's also something kind of, out of the warrior, maybe, but <laughs> yeah, it's just this. Also, the the reminder is that you know what they said. What you know is, I think Royal Rumble and WrestleMania Nine were going to be built around the Ultimate Warrior if he had stayed. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems. I can't even imagine 
what that world looks like, because so many things are going to change between now and then. But yeah, thank God that we were saved from that reality, because they definitely seem all in on the Ultimate Warrior. This goes to your point, is like, he had to come back and then get fired, just so they would finally be forced to actually embrace a new generation of folks. This is what yeah. I don't understand. I'm, so, I'm like ranting here a little bit, but if Hulk Hogan has to go away and become a skeleton, if Randy Savage has to wear stupid shirts and be put on the shelf because he's useless now, how the hell in the steroid trial era, how the hell are we pushing the Ultimate Warrior this hard? It's just baffling to me. They said that um, if they chopped five inches off his height and gave him a Bobby Brady haircut, people wouldn't notice. So <laughs> I don't know if that's strange. true or not. That's just How a rumor. How different physically he is, but fortunately, <laughs> we'll never know because he's not on this set and he's not going to be again until 1996. I honestly believe that if, if he had stayed, we would not be doing this series right now. Ugh, nobody would be doing anything. Hey, remember pro wrestling? No, I don't, and that would be it. So... <laughs> Jesus. It makes no sense. It didn't make sense in 1990, but you got to try it. You do not have to try it in 93. And I think two of my favorite moments, I'm being honest and serious here. Two of my favorite moments in the WWF Legacy Series so far is Ultimate Warrior leaving the company. Both times it was such a boon to everyone involved. And I'm with you. Yeah, like both times we were saved from something tremendously stupid. So all good. I mean, I'm so embarrassed because... Um, I know you're a Goldberg fan from his early time, and Goldberg, you know, Goldberg actually, you know, there was a time in my life where I thought Ultimate Warrior and Goldberg were alike. <laughs> I mean, they're not without some similarities, but I would say Goldberg is what Ultimate Warrior, I don't think he has uh, maybe, I was going to say that's what he wished to be. I don't think Ultimate Warrior has like the perspective to wish to be anything else than what he is, but if he... If he did have perspective, he would say, yeah, that's what I was going for, you know? Yeah. So that's my perspective. Who's a bright, vibrant wrestling character? In general? Yeah. Uh, First person that comes to mind. Coco Beware. Okay, so um, Ultimate Warrior makes me feel like Sid is Chris Benoit meets Coco Beware. <laughs> That's where I'm at on Ultimate Warrior. <laughs> I'm going to have to stew that around in my mind because it, I feel this truth there, but I have to kind of think about it. So, all right. Here are the things that Sid, to me, are a lot is a lot better than you. He's a lot better. Like, he pops a lot better. Like, Ultimate Warrior, I honestly, to this point, if you took away his ring music, I don't know if he ever wins the IC title. Mm. Sid connects with fans in ways I don't understand, but he connects he has a very expressive face. So these are the character That's things. True. But then even the wrestling, like, Sid is so bad. And I was reminded of that at the Royal Rumble. <laughs> but it's almost like being bad is a talent. Like, I wish I could see the Ultimate Warrior be bad. Like, I'm at the point that when I see, when I watch the Ultimate Warrior, I don't see anything. Like, I can't even, I don't know, I can't grasp it. I don't know what he's doing. I can't watch it. With that, I said it during the Macho Men match. Like I stopped watching like five or six times because I thought, man, the match is going to end so I can do something else. And then they'd be still doing stuff. And I, I just kept looking. Ultimate Warrior makes me look away. <laughs> I think I know what you mean. And I, too, would have to take Sid over Warrior in a number of ways. And that that's saying a lot for me, as you know, especially 
as I watch through 1999 WCW and Sid receives the most ludicrous push that I have ever seen in my life. Even with all that in taken into account, I still have to take Sid over Ultimate Warrior, so that'll tell you something. Yeah, and I might be I might be let down uh, when we get Psycho Sid, and it's not like I was ever like, oh my god, Psycho Sid's so awesome because even when I was a kid, the Undertaker versus Sid I did it was just a turn off to me, but like. I remember Psycho Sid at least providing enhancement for the story. Like he got Shawn Michaels where he needed to go. Like he did the things that needed to be done. I've yet to see a good Ultimate Warrior run. So if I get one decent Sid run, then the conversation for me is forever over. <laughs> I mean, he always have that retirement match with Savage. Um, we praise yeah. that rightfully so. But how much That's was that dude so. Ultimate Warrior? I don't know about that. So we'll we'll leave that to one side. Yeah, so the whole point of all that rant was I cannot believe, like you, that we're spending half of Randy Savage's promo talking about how good the Ultimate Warrior is. And I almost saw the one that line that you, you thought Savage was undermining. And so that's also felt like a Hulk Hogan line, which is just like, oh, he's a part of this belt. Like, who the, who cares? If anyone's goal is to be a part of someone else's belt, then they are worse than the <laughs> Ultimate Warrior. That's a good point, but just somehow it came off to me like an anti-Hulk Hogan line. I swear yeah. I felt like he was just trying to give the belt away in that moment. So I think you can read it both ways, and both ways suck. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work. Why would you say that? Oh, man, yeah. Ray Savage is going to have some great stuff in here, but he'll also have some times where I maybe question him a little bit. So it's one yes. of those times. Thank you. I, I, I could not do this show if, if there was not honesty at, on both sides, because it, no, there's nothing I like doing less in this era than to talk negative about Savage. But there's sometimes that you got to say this is definitely not his best work. If we can look at WrestleMania four, which we bigged up to ourselves as like yeah. this watershed moment and be like, man, Savage was like kind of eh on this night. Then I think we can be honest about Savage anytime. Yeah, I went into WrestleMania four wanting to wanting to reject everyone's opinion about the quality of that pay per view and destroy Hulk Hogan and make Randy Savage a star of the eighties, and I didn't even get started on either of those missions. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a thing! So here comes Razor from another generation. Like this is still strange to me. Like some of these new generation guys just walking around in a pre new generation era. Yeah, he's 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 coming back from the future here, for sure. <laughs> a man uh, who will be so important to this company, but here is just coming out of nowhere. I just gotta say, like, uh, we we we've talked a lot about how like WWF would take guys from WCW and just kind of like trash them and just do nothing with them. And here is the opposite of that. Here is like the redeeming value because they will take the diamond stud who was nobody and they will allow him to craft this iconic character who I think is going to be one of the best things about the next several years of this legacy series. Yeah. I think they were always more open if the person had never accomplished anything <laughs> in so WCW <laughs> because uh, we talked about flair and WCW a year ago, razor and Z man were just stripping each other for the enjoyment of the fans. And that was the, the whole uh, concept of their feud. <laughs> That's where he was. Yep. Yep. If they can build you from nothing, they definitely like it better. So you, you are right about that. And Razor's very on the nose. Like, uh, he just says, you don't impress me. 
um, that he has the gold he's oozing with machismo. And he just says, look at you, especially when we know that this is not Savage's uh, best physique years and Razor's, Razor's taller, he's younger. In the world of the WWF, Like he's got a lot going for him. Um, he says you need lessons in machismo. I say just just to talk for a second about physique, like I always liked Razor's physique a lot because he's not like one of these incredibly cut guys. Like you'll never see abs on Scott Hall, I don't think. But man, just like the broadness of him and like the physicality that he will show in the ring, I I really appreciate um, just the whole package of Razor Ramon. Yeah, I think it's about the best like six 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 seven look. Because so many, especially when I was growing up, the six six guy was very Wyndham and Dustin Rhodes. They had no muscle. They had very thin frames, and they're both great wrestlers. But it's not like physique wise. Like Razor's shoulders are made for the for the I was gonna say the diamond cutter, uh, not the diamond cutter, the um, Razor's edge. Yep. Excuse me. Uh, and so I agree with that. And especially in this era, this is the thing that I asked this question because there's two things with Razor. Either he's going to be like the greatest thing that I, for me personally, like, oh my God, what a breath of fresh air. Or I'm going to be like, man, he was a little lazy and an underachiever. He never quite makes it on screen, like in his matches to what I think he's going to be. But put that aside because I'll figure that out as I go. A question that I wrote, because this is a great physique that doesn't look like it's on steroids. So if Razor Ramon wasn't all about putting other people over and he didn't have his demons and he just had was an aspirational motivated I want to be the best does he free us from diesel in 1994 I would bloody well hope so <laughs> I that think about seems... that sometimes and how like if everything were good that's how it would be I think I I got to think he does because diesel in part gets it cuz he's big in an era where everybody's off the steroids but scott hall is is also so man just to think that we might be one razor ramon temperament or behavior pattern away from not having a year-long diesel reign that destroys me inside yeah it's tough and you know i always thought it should be that because to me scott hall is much more charismatic he's better promo he's a better wrestler i feel like he's superior to nash in every way now I will say, if you give Razor Ramon that same uh, demand that, well, now you have to be like the goody two-shoes, like the dork, like yeah. like Diesel was, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if he can even pull that off with like the, the, the way that he is. But putting that aside, like I still would have much rather seen them try that than what we're going to get. Yeah. Even if they both suck, it's not it's not the same level. Uh, <laughs> not the by same far. sucking. Yes, and how's this for you? So we get we're gonna get one of the great matches in the series at WrestleMania ten yep. uh, between Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. And so when we get Diesel and Shawn, the only thing that comes of it is we find out that the fans really like Shawn better than Diesel, which is the worst thing to happen in that era with Diesel. But man, if it's Razor Ramon beating Shawn Michaels at the world title level when Shawn you know, although he lost at uh, WrestleMania 10, mm. you know, that rematch for the world title years later to me has so much more potential than a Diesel Shawn Michaels match. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
I don't know if I've seen I've seen their WrestleMania match, Diesel and Michaels, and I do not care for it. We're gonna talk about that when we get there. I think they have another one which is meant to be better that I have not seen, but yeah, so far I have not been impressed by that pairing. Um outside of the like you know, intercontinental title slash bodyguard thing that they will do for a while, which was probably the best thing they could do with Kevin Nash. Yeah. And that's just my bias talking, but I don't know. We'll watch it carefully and we will see what comes as we go along. Yeah. The funny thing here is like Razor's great signature thing that he does will be the tooth pig. And yet the first time he tries it on a major level, it doesn't work for him. So he throws the toothpick at Savage. Savage picks it up off the floor and I think stabs him in the face with it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was a great moment. That's some of the good Randy Savage where it's like, oh, you dropped this. And then, yeah, Yeah. he goes right after him with it. And uh, Razor goes flying off that platform, which is great. But we see the sign of things to come. Randy Savage is uh, selling that leg already that got beat up at SummerSlam. And, man, that leg injury is going to really cost him on this set because it's going to hang around for a while. It's funny you say that because we're going to Savage versus Flair for the world title next. And my first note, which is the next note on my page, I've never seen a, a bad knee, such a bad knee in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, he'll be hopping around on one foot for a lot of this time. And uh, as always, if they're going to have a, a babyface champion drop the title, they got to have like you know, all the excuses in the world. So that that's what you got here. But, man, just sitting back for a minute, like, some doctor should have stopped him from going out there because he, like, he's hopping around on one foot for a lot of the time here. Yeah, maybe Sean should be world champion because that's what Lord Alfred Hayes tried to explain to us, that, you know, the referee sometimes has to save them from themselves. <laughs> maybe should have done, yeah. There you go. This is so senseless. I, this is the match where Vincent Mann stops and makes them go back and repeat it because they're not working on the knee enough, and then they still don't do it enough. So I think that's why we also just get so much knee, uh, so much limping, so much Vince McMahon talking about it. But, man, if you watch this match, I made the argument, if I could find it somewhere, that if we did not have the statement, like something is on, a little too on the nose, and then this match happened, we all would be saying something's a little too on the knee. <laughs> I believe that with all my heart. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, this uh, this match is very knee centric, certainly. Um, I don't know what you're gonna say about all this in general. We haven't really talked about it. I I enjoy this match. It's no WrestleMania, but uh, certainly it has a certain theme, and that theme definitely is the injured name. This is not bad. I would have to find my notes to say what I said about it because we got so many. We got a lot of these guys in more than one match, but this was definitely not one of the matches where I was just like, oh my goodness, this is not that good. This is not one of the matches where you thought it was not good? Yeah, so, so you I love, yeah, Perfect is great in this match. Flair is great. Like, I love the idea that it's Bobby Heenan's great. The idea, too, is that uh, they don't even think uh, that Randy Savage is a challenge in a way, you know, like they, they know what they're going to do. They, they, they're going to they're gonna take out the leg and all of that. And so Savage is always Savage. So it, I don't think you can have a horrible Savage Flair match. To me, it's not one of their best comparatively, but it was not one that I had a problem with. Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think I probably liked it a little more than you. I think at least there are some great aspects of this match because you can say maybe they overdid the knee, and maybe they did. But if you're going to start from there... I think they did work around it very well because you have a lot of moments, and this is one of my favorite things, a lot of moments with Savage 
is trying to mount his comeback, and, you know, he's getting going, getting going, and Flair will kick the leg or something, and he will be just shut down. And I love that kind of selling, and I love that kind of dynamic, because it's so logical, and it so often gets ignored uh, by maybe some uh, lesser wrestlers. So just, just having that dynamic, for me, it did work pretty well. Uh, he's yeah, busting out like unusual leg submissions and stuff here to break him down. So just really strong psychology. I think I've mixed up this match too with uh, both uh, Flair versus Brett and Savage versus Ramon because I've just made comments that don't go with this match. So <laughs> ignore me, folks, for a little bit. Fair enough. I mean, the leg, the leg will be an even bigger thing when we get to that Razor Ramon match. So uh, that that definitely could be what you're thinking of there. Bobby Heenan says, "I'm not nervous. I'm excited." Oh, yeah, Bobby Heenan on the edge of his seat here, for sure. Uh, world title on the line, everything they've talked about, um, you know, he's he's a factor as well, as is Mr. Perfect. Like, everything on Flair's side seems to be all clicking together in this match. One of my favorite parts, we've always talked about Savage pretty much being legless. He's laying on the mat, and he just hops and he flies in the air over the bottom rope to try to punch Mr. Perfect and just punches air. Mm, yeah, yeah. There's actually some really great Randy Savage moments in here. Like, if you ask him to fight like he's hurt, he'll really do it. Like, he'll he'll really sell it to the max here, and I think he does it very well. Yeah, I, I say I love when Savage gets into his offense. It's always relentless and continual. Those short clotheslines. Just when he gets after it, man, it's, it's something to watch. Yeah, yeah, no, it really is. And, uh, and it costs him as well because he has this nice comeback, but he really... Um, you know, he's exploding a little too strongly and not maybe thinking the way he ought to be. And I get that. Like, whenever I'm doing that things, I'm the same. I think we've talked about, like, even just when you're uh, talking to people, it's like you're not quite in your own head. You're not, like, thinking out things before you do them or say them. So he will jump out to the floor. He will try that diving double axe handle, and he will uh, bust his leg up. And uh, that was probably the worst thing that he could have done when you're thinking about the psychology of the match. But, hey, just like Bobby Eaton, you know, the same but different. He's making that mistake, and uh, it's really going to cost him here. Yeah, I think for Savage, the same thing that's going to get him to the world title is going to remove the world title from him. Yeah, yeah, that's the curse of Randy Savage, I think, through his whole career. You can see that the blessing and the curse of being such a strong fire element of exploding in every mm. direction all the time. Sometimes you blow yourself up, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I noted this this match needed Jesse Ventura on commentary because we get two lines from Vince McMahon. One of them is that Randy Savage is justified to use a chair in this match. <laughs> and the second one is... Um, let's see. Savage has every right to want to get counted out or DQ'd in this match. <laughs> These are Vince McMahon commentary. That is absurd. It is weird. Like, when Vince McMahon says stuff like this, you have to wonder what's in the mind of Vince McMahon when he says a thing like that. Does He, he says it because he really believes in from, like, the babyface perspective. Like, they should just have that much privilege. Does he say it just because... He's trying to play this character of, like, the over-the-top babyface supporter. I have no clue. They're very strange comments sometimes, for sure. The way he says it always seems like, you know, they've been through so much. The heel's done so many things to them. And so I get the chair one a little bit more, but I don't know how you just outright say that he has every right to get counted out of DQ because that 
is like the uh, low level heel state. Like that is Bobby Heenan at his lowest weasel moment. Right, right, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Goes back to what we were talking about about Hulk Hogan, and I think honestly, by extension, other baby faces were just supposed to be like unassailable in their their actions at times. And that, hey, right there, that's baby face privilege. We've talked about it for years now. Yeah, maybe as a manager that works because. Uh, Randy Savage is not going to get disqualified. He's not going to get counted out. And maybe that is a mistake for him because this is going to be a changing of the guard. Hey, maybe it's foreshadowing as well. Vince McMahon will manage uh, world champions of his own in time, and he will uh, advise them to do nefarious weasel-like things. So Mm -hmm. maybe it's some very uh, clever foreshadowing. It's not, but we could interpret it as such. Yeah. And like we talked about perfect on the outside, Razor Ramon is going to come down give one kind of swift kick to the leg that's almost going to turn Randy Savage upside down. Mm. That's a nice moment. I That moment is, uh, I can picture it clearly in my mind, even before I rewatch this match. So that's uh, a certain amount of iconic stuff. I just don't know why, you know, this is the, they show this on primetime, like after the fact, and uh, this was not even like a real match that normally would be like recorded and shown to anybody. So it's just, it's very strange how they put this out here, but even so, like, it's still, uh, you know, is very memorable to me. It has a certain iconic aspect to it. Yeah. I, I remember that kick as well, and this is going to be one more thing, and like you said, we got to, we got to have the baby face go down a certain way, so we're going to get a figure four, but Randy Savage, we have to, I think, too, maybe this is why Vince was so mad about, like, work the leg from the beginning, work it the whole time, because ultimately Randy Savage just needs to pass out because like he would never give up. He would never be beaten, but he just passes out. Yeah. I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense to me because like when I look at the action of this match, it's not something I would yell at anybody for. Like, I think uh, parts of this are quite great, but in the mind of Vince McMahon, you're going to have your babyface champion lose and you don't have like a doppelganger referee and you don't have like mm-hmm. all the excuses that maybe you've had in the past. So you've really got to sell the hell out of it. That's the only thing that makes sense here for all we've talked about. Bruce Pritchard said something uh, that I heard the other day that just, I think it illuminated everything for me because I always know I, what I like, which is NWA, WCW and WWF when Vince doesn't like it. But I never really think about what he likes because by mind, I don't even know how to think like that. And so Bruce, I think Bruce Pritchard was asked, you know, what, what, uh, Vince McMahon thought of Ric Flair. And he talked about on the personal level, like he's, he's made a bunch of allowances for Flair that, that many people, they hasn't for others. But as a wrestler, Ric Flair would never be his cup of tea. Like Ric Flair is not what he wants because Ric Flair made his career in making you think what was happening was real and kind of the first thing that Vince McMahon wants to do is to get that out of the way. Like let's not insult our audience by trying to make them think, Oh, it's real. Like, and I think when you <sighs> remove that barrier and you think about Hulk Hogan and you think about uh, diesel, you think about John Cena, Roman Reigns, like he just wants to put these larger than life performances and I don't think you're supposed to sweat the ending. You're just supposed to enjoy it. Like Diesel's going to like uh, Hulk up, and Hulk Hogan's going to Hulk up, and Roman Reigns is going to hit that heart punch, and you're going to go home happy watching a larger-than-life performance where the obvious thing happens. 
And when you have to beat that baby face, then like like you said, there's got to be like a referee who like lost his identity. But like when you think about Vince McMahon's, and this is not right and this is not fair, but this is kind of what that leads to. And I'm not the one that said it. It's almost like it's got to be anti-struggle, anti-climactic, anti-engagement. You know, like we love Andre versus Hogan, but I think what the storyline is really is supposed to be is that Andre's so big that you can't beat him. But then Hulk Hogan beats him and he slams him. Like you know, the end, the struggle in the match doesn't matter. It's just like as a theme, as as a story. Like oh my God, he's too big. No, he's not too big. And the same thing is supposed to happen every month. And we come back and just watch it and watch it and watch it and we just enjoy it. And that's why the worst thing that can happen is for the fans not to like John Cena, not to like Roman Reigns, because that's what he's giving you. And if you don't like that, I'm not sure what you're there for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, we can all be grateful that at least the early, the 80s Hulk Hogan years did not actually feel like that as we went through them. Um, yes. But I think we can take a take a note that perhaps uh, the wrong lessons were learned in that era and they have uh, gone forward many years, even to today, perhaps. So, um, so, yeah, I don't know. There's definitely something interesting there. It's just a, it's a weird way to make your distinction that almost – Everything that I love about wrestling could be captured by Ric Flair being the 60-minute man who, for 60 minutes against whoever he's wrestling, can make you think he's going to lose the belt. Like, you're in that eternal struggle, and that is almost what immediately disqualifies him for Vince McMahon, is needing to have that, oh, it's so real, and someone who knows who's going to win. Like, where I begin my fandom is where he ends his, it feels like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As much as I've enjoyed doing... WWF The Legacy Series, and will continue to enjoy for years to come. Uh, I will be thankful both then and now that Vince McMahon is not the sole proprietor of professional wrestling. Yes. That's what's beautiful, though, and I wish even today we got so many companies, I wish there would be more uh, distinction in them at times, because yeah. that's where you can love Vince McMahon. Even if you if you disagree on the most fundamental thing, you can still love it, because there's other companies that do what you like. like you can come to it on its terms but like you said if it's the only company then it it would be hard to come to them on their terms indeed i'm grateful for the differences we have but yes the homogenization of wrestling is definitely a problem that's what comes from having uh such a strong singular influence or, or very few really strong influences over time so we'll pray for the uh continued diversification of wrestling yes. in uh, in many different ways Absolutely. One thing I love about the WWF, I don't know who came up with this, but it seems like every time the heels win the belt, there's a celebration afterward. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like they won't get to do this in every era, but uh, that that dark victory, it's not even, it, 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 they don't feel evil. They're just like a bunch of scoundrels celebrating yes. together. It's great. When uh, Flair wins the title, Heenan shouts, we did it on commentary back we see flair we see perfect we see champagne we see bobby Hina will run in they will say i told you so razor ramon as well will show up they'll make fun of savage what a beautiful group these four are together like these four could have gone on and just done things i think for for years and i would have been happy with it yeah this is so beautiful like imagine watching wwf and rick flair says it's not the warrior it's not savage it's mr wwf and he's talking about himself (laughs) yes that was incredible that jumped out to me as well so rick flair mr 
WWF is something you won't hear again, I think. So th- here's the weird thing. Razor Ramon, almost everything good that happened to him early in his career was the guidance of Mr. Perfect. So he loves Mr. Perfect. As soon as he got to WWF, became friends with Mr. Perfect again. He hates Ric Flair. So uh, he felt like when he was Ric Flair, the booker, he didn't treat him well in WCW. And so he came in very much disliking Flair. So Vince McMahon was talking about putting the belt back on, which, you know, you just complimented this uh, backstage segment with these guys. Uh, Razor had already given his feelings to Mr. Perfect. So Vince McMahon was like, does anybody have any objection, you know, to kind of like, like they're having a conversation about this thing. Perfect. And perfect is beside Scott Hall. And, Razor is about to go. Razor wants to tell Vince McMahon, this guy won the WCW world title and he took it to your company. What makes you think he wouldn't do the same thing to you in a way to try to get Vince McMahon not to trust uh, <laughs> Ric Flair and like perfect kicks him in the foot like before he can say it, according <laughs> to Razor Ramon. So there's a, there's a little story for you. <laughs> God for Mr. Perfect um, once again because uh, I just don't feel like that conversation could have ended well for anybody. So nah. yeah, I'm not at all shocked that Hall and Flair had heat, um, but I will say what happened on screen and like everything that will follow is very good in my book. So I'll be grateful that nothing uh, derailed it. No, nah, it's almost even better to think that that that's how he felt. But man, you you would never know it watching this stuff because. You'd never know. Like, he and Flair will be standing next to each other many times on this set, and, uh, you know, they'll wrestle together at Survivor Series on a team, and, yeah, they seem like they are thick as thieves. So they both did their jobs extremely well. This is why I love transition errors, though, if they're done right, because we got Savage versus Flair, and that's one kind of... I see the transition or part of the older era. It's definitely not new generation. Mm-hmm. And then we got Razor and Brett. And if you take the very end of, like... If you took all time, I would take Savage and Flair every day. But if you're taking the end of their runs in WWF and then the beginning of what's coming with Razor and Brett, it is hard to make that decision. But yet we get this moment in time where it's Savage and Razor, Brett and Flair. And it's just not all the time that you can get this. Indeed not. I will just ask, based on that story, where is my Razor Ramon Mr. Perfect match that... uh, would have been awesome, and I don't know if that even exists out there, mm. but uh, God, I would have loved to see that, because they'll be on opposite sides before we're even done with this episode, so my God, I don't think that ever even happened uh, in any recorded setting, so boo. I'm going to show. ask you a, what I think will be a very difficult question for you. All right. If you could have Mr. Perfect win the Royal Rumble and face Bret Hart at WrestleMania 9, but that's got to eliminate uh, the Yokozuna run, do you do it? Oh, that is difficult. Yeah. What do you mean eliminate? Like eliminate from history or just like he doesn't have that particular run? I think that, that you, you would have to say maybe he has a run later, but maybe he doesn't because we don't know what comes of like the Mr. Perfect Bret Hart either. So, you know... It definitely has the potential to change history. Maybe it doesn't, but like you, you can't say for sure. So you got to just kind of, let's say it's never happened, and you got to pick one. I'd do it. Screw it. <laughs> you would do which? I I would do. I would give Mister Perfect that run. Okay. I I love Mister Perfect. I don't. It's not my money. I don't care. I can play with history. I love Yokozuna, but you know he Vince loves big guys. He'll still have a moment, I think, later on. So. I'm going to do it. I'm all about it. 
That that's a tough one though. Apparently, another story I heard. Um, Mr. Perfect, Bret Hart, and Razor Ramon were in a bar together in '93, and they all were doing some drinking. And Mr. Perfect started telling Bret Hart that if he had never had a back injury, he would be where Bret Hart is, and Bret Hart would not be there. And yeah. they got into kind of a heated argument, but uh, they also said Mr. Perfect is the kind of guy that can piss you off in the next minute and be your best friend. So like a minute later, uh. Perfect and Brett were drinking together, and I think Razor Ramon broke a window <laughs> because he got so mad during the argument. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's something. I guess I love Mr. Perfect, but I think he's wrong about that. Um, I don't think it was going to happen for him for whatever reason, but uh, if it had, hey, I would have been as happy as anybody. So it's good stuff. It just makes me think because, like, I don't know if Mr. Perfect's ever been that guy for me as much as others. So I, I still I have to think more about this, but you know, we did have that classic SummerSlam match. So I could see a world where Perfect wins the Rumble and you have Perfect versus Brett. I don't know where you go after that because I guess that's Babyface versus Babyface, which we were doing a lot of in this era. Yeah. So I don't know. Part of me would go Yoko, but it would have to be Yoko with a different history because like I Yoko is much better than Diesel, of course, but like. This begins this thing, too, where it's just like put the belt on somebody for a year just so they can kind of hold it. Not that they're doing anything. So I don't I don't know what I would want. I think 93, early 93 is difficult, but I wonder what people will think of that. Do you go Yoko uh, Brett or do you go Perfect Brett if you're booking uh, early 93? Yeah, someone's going to have to weigh in on that as well, because uh, even I could see value either way. I don't know with Mr. Perfect. Like, I love the guy, but... After SummerSlam 91, even if he was not injured, I could see them just Rick Martelling him, you yeah. know? So it's really hard to say if he would have gotten that level push or not. I kind of feel not, because I think he, like Ric Flair, is not exactly the kind of guy that Vince McMahon likes that much, um, you know, for, like, his body type and the way he wrestles and all this stuff. And I don't know. I, I think Vince still would have gone Yoko. Um, I think he still would have gone Brett as well. So... I don't know. Who knows? Uh, mysteries. For me mystery. personally, I, don't, I mean no offense to anyone. I don't. Mr. Perry is not a world champion in, in a company that I'm running, but I also I am very open to hearing other opinions. Is he like you? You think he's a tier below like Bret Hart? Then <sighs> I think, and this because this could be just be my short sightedness because Bret Hart would be possibly a world champion. But, like, if he had never been a world champion, he would have never been a world champion in my <laughs> mind either. Because I see both of them as great wrestlers, but both of their personalities, to me, lack something. Um, not Brett's in 97, but Brett's the rest of his career. So, like, you know, like it, maybe Perfect would be a great world champion. I don't know. Brett changes my mind just for the fact that you could ask him to do anything, and he's never going to say no because it's his whole life. But that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> That's fair. I would say Mr. Perfect, like, certainly not in the Hulk Hogan era do I think you elevate him to actually be world champion. But in new gen, I don't know. I can see it pretty easily. I'll just say, uh, even all this put aside, Gert Hennig was the AWA champion, so he was a world champion. He did a great job in that role. Just watch those matches with Nick Bockwinkel, and I'll tell you something right there. And it's funny I enough because he spent so much time being a babyface as well, so there could be aspects of Kurt Hennig that don't even fully come through in the WWF. Yeah. I was about to say as well, 
he would have to be a heel because, like, to me, like, his face is not a baby face. <laughs> I've been thinking about how much his face changes because you see when he's younger and his face doesn't look the same. It got, like, bigger somehow yeah. and it got more heelish. So, yeah, no, he always says heel to me when you get to this era. So maybe, depending on what the roster is, like, I can see him possibly a heel that puts over a baby face. Like, I can see him really putting someone over well if he's a – he would have to be the worst kind of heel. Mm. A lot like Owen Hart, which I like Owen Hart personally. So like I might be more willing to do something with him. But I think both of them, neither to me has the obvious, I don't know how to say this, like personality wise, you got to put them almost in the far corner of just antagonistic for me to like for me to engage them on that level. But I think it, maybe if you make them the ultimate antagonist and give them storylines that match, I might be able to go with it. Well, it's always key to have storylines that match. So uh, yeah. I get you. I'm with you. And so like when I'm talking about this too, I'm thinking about a baby face versus baby face, Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect match for the WrestleMania main event. And, you know, I mean, we'll get that at King of the ring in less than a year. So yeah, that's true. King of the ring. <laughs> Oh, man, that's a good conversation. I definitely would like to hear folks, because I think a lot of people would be pro Give Perfect the world title, and I am not against like hearing about that, so I'd like to hear how you would do it, when you would do it, maybe what the scenario would look like. But, yeah, you're, I would have the same opinion of Bret Hart if Vince McMahon had not proven me other proven otherwise. That's fair enough. And I'll just say, um, if it was not my money, I would just give it to him for the hell of it, because yeah. I'm just such a big fan of the guy. If it was my money... I would have to think harder on it. I'll, I'll admit that, you know, as much as I like the guy, I don't think he really has a history of drawing. But then again, who's going to have a history of drawing in these next few years? So, you know, yeah. maybe you take a chance anyway. I don't know. Like, there are different factors to look at. It's complicated. Like, I was thinking, like, Shawn Michaels is one of the worst draws as world champions. And I was thinking two of my most excited moments in my life as a Shawn Michaels fan was when he beat Davey and when he beat Jeff Jarrett. And the interesting thing about that is he beat them both for the IC title. So, like, I got much more hyped and I celebrated a whole lot more in his IC title wins than I did in his world title wins. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially in this first run that um, that's probably true for a lot of people. I don't, I don't know how people feel about the, uh, the boyhood dream because that's been kind yeah. of deified uh, to the WWE to the point where, like, I don't know if you can just know what the original moment was like anymore, but... Um, I don't know. We'll have to talk about that, too, when we get there, because that is a very famous moment. It is. I, I like this conversation, too, though, because this was a time when making Bret Hart a world champion or making Perfect or making Sean is a risk. It will prove to be less so after you do it, like most things in life. Mm. But if you really think about back in a time where it was a risk, who do you risk it on if you make that choice? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a gamble. You don't have your uh, your Hulk Hogan anymore and uh you know it's a very different kind of champion to put your belt on so so it is a risk you know you got to think about the gamble you're going to make yeah i think brett again with that international appeal that's one of the best things that will happen to the wwf so we'll unpack this we're gonna see these all these guys later uh we need to get into maybe the greatest thing i've ever seen in my entire life <laughs> thank all you all right Mitch, tell tell what's up I want to, yeah, tell me. Tell me the greatest thing. Go. The Undertaker versus Haku. 
Just the entrances. <laughs> I don't know what happened here, but I feel like I was transported to another dimension. I feel like I left Earth. Like Haku's wearing what looks like a Hawaiian shirt, and he's got this wild music. And then the Undertaker has the most Undertaker Undertaker entrance. And I don't care what happens in the match. Like number one, while Haku was coming down to the ring, I inducted him into my Elegante Big Josh Kamala Matt Bourne group. So he, he is now part of that with his shirt as long as he brings that shirt with him. And then like the Undertaker with the casket out and the very Undertaker, it just felt sense off the chart. And like you know it's gonna be like a, a, a good match because it's these two, but it, it when Haku attacks him before the match. It broke my spirit for a moment because I thought Haku and The Undertaker were feeling what I was feeling and it felt holy and reverent. And then Haku just runs and attacks and I'm like, okay, back to reality. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you're going to have some sort of transcendent Haku, I think he's still going to just attack you. So, like, maybe yes. maybe he's still in that zone. But, man, this is what I love about doing these Road 2 sets because I feel yes. like we're digging into different parts of the earth to unearth stuff that we have not really dug into before. So to do this, this is a match from Japan, uh, co-promoted with uh, with a promotion over there, and you get these weird, interesting matches. You have Haku is not even in the WWF anymore, but here he gets to fight The Undertaker in a weird, I don't know if I call it a dream match, but it could be like a dream-like match, certainly. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you get uh, the weird shirt, you get Undertaker with the casket and the druids and all this stuff that, like, he hasn't even had this stuff hardly in the WWF, and now suddenly here it is, like, fully formed. Just getting into this, it's so weird, but, like, good. So, I don't know, I was very glad that we were able to check this one out. Yeah, I think I've told this story before, but I had no culture growing up. And so I got, first community college I went to, like, we had to go to a play in, a, in an acting class, and I had never been to a play. And I walk into, like... There's like a chessboard set or something, and it's just you get to watch this whole world unfold in front of you, and it's like you've got you can contain the whole world and watch it. It felt like the ultimate place to tell a story. And like when I was watching this, I was like, this this, this feels like a play to me. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. Something about it. I'll tell you what it felt like to me once we got into it. It felt like. Godzilla versus, you know, uh, mm. Mothra or somebody or King Kong, because these two guys, just the way they are wailing on each other in these match, uh, it's uh, it's something to see. Like, I got a felt sense off it for sure. Yeah. And once you get past all that dreamlike stuff I was talking about, you're right. You get you got two of the best big men in the business and you got two like I've never seen this in my life. You know, the, the spot where you throw someone to a corner and you run in and they lift their boot and they kick you in the face. Well, Haku does that, and then he turns his foot sideways because that's the kind of, you know, the kind of kicking that he can do. So, like, he does a different, even version of that than I've ever seen. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This match felt totally different than it did, than it would if it had been done in the WWF. Like, mm -hmm. I think Haku was treated uh, with a lot more kind of reverence here. Yes. I think the match overall, it just, it felt like monsters fighting and i really enjoyed the vibe of it it's not like the most amazing match you'll ever see in terms of like it's not that long and you yeah. know like if you want the the crazy moves you probably won't get that but man if you just want a certain felt sense that you're really going to enjoy if you're like myself and the mystic then i think you'll really like this one or if you just miss haku 
Sure, which I do every day, constantly. He was on Dynamite the other week. I don't know if I told you that, but he showed up and he did the tongue and death grip on somebody, and I was just about as happy as a person could be. That's awesome. My goodness. It is, like, it's a short match, and it's about what you expect from these two, but at the same time, it's where WWF is better and worse than every other company because <laughs> if something needs to be made better, sometimes WWF can make it better. But when something does not need to be made better, then when they try to make it better, they make it worse. <laughs> you are right about that. And I truly believe this match could not have been as fun as it was in the WWF because they would have been obsessed with, well, Haku is, like, not important. You know, let's just put him on the shelf. And Undertaker, you know, he probably should not feel any pain or sell anything. And I don't know. It's just uh, it's very good stuff. Like, I enjoyed this match a lot. Yeah, I been. I definitely just check it out for the vibe, check it out for the match, check it out for Haku, but definitely check it out. One of the greatest things the Mystic has seen, I believe he said. So that's that's something right there. And that's just the entrance. So see yeah. what you think of that. It seemed I said it was thematically beautiful and to me it is. Mm. Like it's a different I think partly it's the Undertaker at, at kind of that best Undertaker. And like you said, we haven't really seen that in WWF yet. And it's Haku it's a, it's a Haku who's very much Haku, but also not in the same Haku. And I appreciate, I feel like we saw more of Haku than we usually see. And I don't, I don't know who he is or how he is, but he's different than what we've seen. And we saw a little bit of that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he spent so much time being kind of like a generic, just big monster heel for somebody to beat. And now, now he feels like his own person. So that, that's something. I appreciate that. He's just about a, what, two years away from uh, wearing those shades and getting that chair broken over his head. So the yeah. many faces of Haku and Meng, I will always appreciate the guy. And he looks physically like he's in between Haku and Meng. <laughs> yeah, he's making that, that physical transformation, which is so hard to articulate. So, my God, I'll never understand how they're the same person, but you know they are just because they both have that same great feeling. I swear they look different, though. Yeah. Man, Undertaker will get the tombstone, will get the pin. He didn't bring the casket out for no reason, so he's going to get the victory. Uh, check that one out. Then, uh, smoothly, we go to an Undertaker Paul Bearer uh, promo because Survivor Series is going to be a casket match uh, between The Undertaker and Kamala. Indeed, and we see one of my favorite uh, Undertaker kind of accessory locations, and that is the, uh, the coffin-making workshop, which we will mm -hmm. see. Only rarely, but man, I love this just as part of the Undertaker's uh, aura. Imagine having like the body paint or whatever it is that identifies you placed upon that that casket. Like that is such a mind game move. Right? Yeah, to see your own symbol on the lid of a coffin, and like you're going in there. Like that's uh, man, this is a very effective promo, I think, between Paul Bearer and Undertaker. And I love the way this is delivered and shot and Undertaker, like, comes out of the coffin and the camera goes in and just, like, there's a lot of good stuff here. You you may really appreciate this if you are like the mystic and myself. Yeah, I thought it was very effective. Um, how do you beat someone in a casket match who hangs out in the casket when they're not on the job? <laughs> right, like, this is definitely his home turf, absolutely. I also don't know how I'm so dull-minded that it didn't hit me like the name Survivor Series being 
almost made for The Undertaker. And so much of what he's done already has been Survivor Series. His debut, uh, his world title victory. And so he's really emphasizing the name of Survivor Series and how he's going to suffocate uh, Kamala. Kamala's going to take his last breath. So, weirdly, Survivor Series is kind of early on an Undertaker event. For sure. First casket match here, I think. And there's going to be uh, quite a few of those going forward. And next year, hey... He's going to be mixing it up with uh, Yokozuna, I think, so that's uh, significant as well. Yes. Okay, so we got that promo, and I'm looking forward to this evolution of The Undertaker. Then we're, This is a wild one. You, you've done something, my friend, because we're going to go to <laughs> Tenaru versus Ric Flair in Japan in 92. Is it Japan? Yes, yes, it's the same show as the... Uh, Haku Undertaker match, and uh, this is rare because you see Ric Flair defend the WWF Championship against somebody not in the WWF, Genichiro Tenryu, who is a, a legend in Japan, and um, yeah, so j- just just to see all that together, and I really wanted to put this on, I had not seen it before, but I was very curious about it, both because of the unique scenario and because this is, like, one of Ric Flair's kind of lost title reigns, like, it'll be over before you know it, almost. You're going to say, oh, well, he didn't do anything. Well, he at least did this. He went to Japan. He defended it against a completely unexpected opponent. And uh, and I, I think there's a lot to enjoy in this match as well, so I'm glad we could put this on here. Absolutely. September 15th, 92, two out of three falls. And a lot like Hulk Hogan, uh, you're not going to see Ric Flair simply just doing the Ric Flair match in this. Right, yeah, no, I mean, uh, Hanson versus Hogan is still one of the highlights of all we've covered on here, so I don't know if I can say this is as good as that, but yeah, this is something different, this is something that feels like, uh, like this should be an NWA match or something, yeah. you know, this, this has a very different feel to it. It's funny, too, because Flair comes out looking somber, and it's very majestic, and then the, the minute the bell rings, we get the kind of gregarious Flair, and wooing, and ta- taunting, and all that, but... He doesn't start it until the until the bell rings. Oh, <laughs> uh, indeed. That's for clear for you. I think uh, with this matchup as well, I don't know, maybe not for a guy on Flair's level at this time, but I wonder what it feels like if you made your name, say, in a WWF, to go to another country where you're not going to work the same style and to get over still. Like, that has to be a good feeling to when, when you become more global and it's not one style or one fan group and you realize you can do it in multiple places in multiple ways. That has to be a good feeling. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a lot of wrestling history, which is highly territorial. Guys uh, kind of just succeeding in one area, but we're really reaching a time now in the 90s where it's going to become more global, and I think it's really one of the best times because you have guys who can easily go to other countries, other locations, other styles, and see how their style meshes with theirs, but we've not yet reached a point where everyone is wrestling the same style, so you see these great differences, you see these interesting things happen, and it's just a very rich time, I think. Yeah. Uh, One note, I said whether it's a suplex, a chop, or even like uh, arm touching a chest in a like if you catch someone with a running sleeper every time there's contact you can hear the contact oh absolutely yeah i mean this is a snug match uh the the strikes you can definitely feel them the the technique is very impressive as well 
and uh, just a lot of viciousness at times, too, because Flair, like, he's sneaking in the closed fists. At one point, he's just stomping on mm. Tenryu's face. Like, this is a guy who, uh, you know, whatever world title he has, he's going to do absolutely anything he has to to keep a hold of it. Man, and if he does, he's barely going to do it because not <laughs> only is this is a well-contested back-and-forth match, but like earlier on, Flair's going to drop the first round, and this does not feel like... He's confident about that he's necessarily going to win the next two. <laughs> Man, you know, I would have to look into this, but if Flair ever won the first fall of a two out of mm. three falls match, I would actually be surprised. I think he might be more out of out of sorts if he did. <laughs> he would know what to do. You know, yeah. so that's a great point. He would certainly lose the second fall and maybe the third one as well. <laughs> well, he definitely loses... Um, the first fall here, he gets folded up with that power bomb. Yep. Uh, he gets knocked with chops and zaguris, all this stuff. We see kind of the great repertoire of Tenryu. And uh, and this guy, he really is a legend. I think he did actually invent the enziguri, and he'll do his version more than once in this match. Yes. I think there's a really nice spot with that later. It's yeah. Just, yeah. He's trying to submit Flair early in the second round. Like I said, this is not – you don't want to be 0-1 in this matchup. And Flair – Flair, I think, is just trying to survive at this point. Absolutely. And I will say this about Flair. You said he seems a little different coming in. I think he seemed a little different in the match as well because he is relying on his heel tactics. He's playing that character. But more so than I think he would be in the WWF, he is also kind of badass in this match. Like, he will Mm -hmm. fight back in different ways. Uh, he will carry himself a little differently. He will show a different kind of pride in his fight. It's a different Ric Flair a little bit, and in some ways, this is my favorite kind of Ric Flair. So it's some yeah. very good stuff there. And like you said, even to get like the straight punch to the face, he has to hide it behind the referee, behind his own body. Yeah. So it's a different style, different context. It's also weird because the second fall is going to be ended with the figure four, which is, you know, I guess we got Savage passing out, but more times than not, you don't, Ric Flair does not win with a figure four. <laughs> Indeed, infamously uh, not, but he does get it here, and I think um, there's a lot of things, I think, with Ric Flair that are kind of modern things that maybe were not so true when he was in his prime, mm-hmm. which he's still on the tail of here, so you may well, see thanks. more of Flair winning with that figure four, uh, you may see Flair acting in a different way, I think in time, as Flair passes out of his uh, prime, perhaps, he will come to rely on stuff like he'll he'll be flare flopping and kind of being foolish and uh, he'll get pantsed more and he will um, you know the flare spot where he'll drop down and he'll say no so yeah. loud yes yeah. he will do that kind of thing more and more and I, I prefer this Ric Flair to that Ric Flair you know he's very good at making himself look foolish but man that's just not what you should do all of the time I think he said that very well because there was a time in my life where obviously I knew the earlier flair better than the later flair but then i lived through the later flair and and i haven't really watched a lot of wrestling in between so i think more times than not i know him more for the later run and that's a good point that not only is he different in different contexts but it's also different eras of a career yeah absolutely rick flair like his career is so long and so um nuanced that i think uh it's easy to, to kind of pin him in a little box, but I don't think he really fits in that box. So it's interesting to watch him. We'll, we'll see more of Flair before we're all done here. Yeah. Each of these falls run about 10 to 15 minutes. 
I love the ending with Flair standing on the apron and Tenaru in the ring, and he does that kick to the head, and Flair's head hits the apron, and he falls to the floor. You know, that's, that's a nice uh, little spot. But then, of course, I think with a lot of these endings, you don't really get endings. So uh, he's trying to get Flair back into the ring. Can't quite do it. I think we get double count out, and then they just kind of fall on each other on the floor as if they have both gone as far as they can go. Yeah, I'll say some people are really bothered by finishes like this, and I get it, like sometimes maybe I am too, but here, look at the execution of it, because look at the way Flair goes down, and look at how authentic it feels, and then look at Tenryu trying to get him back in the ring, but he can't do it because his leg has been injured by Ric Flair. Like, it's it's playing off what happened before so perfectly that I, I can't say a word against it. I think this is a great match overall. It also makes you rethink everything because these are grown men who are world champions, mm. and yet anybody can just pick them up off the floor and throw them in with ease anytime they want. Like maybe it should be a struggle once in a while to get a <laughs> another world champion off the floor and into the ring if he doesn't want to go into the ring. Absolutely, it it's very understandable. Yet also, I think you lose something when you fall into short hands like that kind of shortcuts so you just say oh well this part's not important just ignore it like we're just going to gloss over it so fast so when you put struggle into all aspects of the match i think you really gain something at times yeah man that that is very well said and and that's the art of the thing though is when when you take something that is shorthand and you unpack it again like you've done something brilliant it's small but it's brilliant and it's a very diplomatic way to end the match but it's also very well done yeah, yeah, I think it's a great match. It's uh, longer than most of the matches you'll see here, so make a little time if you're going to check it out. I think it's something like uh, 35, 40 minutes, but yeah, I think it's a great match. So I hope uh, you will have time to watch it as well. Yeah, we're definitely going world to world uh, because <laughs> now we're going to be in the event center with Sean Mooney for a short clip, I think, from Primetime Wrestling and Oh man, this one hits hard because we are we're not long. Sean Mooney is not long for the Legacy Series. Indeed not. I put this on because uh, I enjoy it, but also just specially for you. This is like a one minute clip, and I can't stress enough how much I enjoy this little interaction between Bobby Heenan and Sean Mooney here. Yeah, I usually would enjoy it, and I do enjoy it indirectly. But man, I can't even. I am so. I'm such a Sean Mooney fan right now that I can't even have heels like like making fun of him. <laughs> Sean Mooney is not related to Jameson, by God. <laughs> uh, so we have Sean Mooney in the event center, and uh, in the middle of what he's doing, Bobby Heenan like breaks in from the primetime studio, and I love that they're able to talk back and forth from these studios, and he's heckling Sean Mooney, and yes, he's comparing him to Jameson. And they're they're able to go back and forth a little bit, and God, what just a lovely little moment here, I think. Yeah, and it overlaps nicely with what we said about the other match about the shorthand, because you think when you leave the primetime table and you go to the event center that you're in a different place until you go back, and Bobby Heenan somehow just like starts conversating across <laughs> like sets, and it's like, what the hell is going on? Oh, that's brilliant! I love that breaking the norm just a little bit there. Vince doesn't defend him or nothing. And he's like, thank you, Mr. Mooney. <laughs> like, he's he getting mocked the whole time. Oh, my gosh. Great stuff. This is also strange because we're going to get Sean Mooney, I think, on a couple of episodes of Raw. But his last big appearance is Survivor Series. So, in a way, wow. you can put him with British Bulldog and Warrior. So, if we're moving into the new generation, um, 
we're starting to see like the 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 way that it comes about. Like, we're losing a lot of people. I don't know if we'll get Sean Mooney on Royal Rumble. I feel like they said, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if he's on a pregame for WrestleMania 9 or you're supposed to be, but I think it's in that WrestleMania 9 weekend where we officially replace uh, Mooney with Todd Pettingill. So the changes are coming. Man, I would love, I would love to like throw Vince McMahon or somebody under the bus here, but I'm reading when his contract came up in 93, Mooney was the one who opted uh, not yep. to renew it. So, I got to respect that choice, I guess. But, man, he would have fit so perfect in the new generation. I don't know. More power to him doing what he wanted. I think he worked in, like, the news and, uh, you know, uh, in other places. So, good for him. But, man, I would have loved to see him um, continue in this role because I also am a big Sean Mooney fan. Yeah. It's it's tough. I'm glad it worked out that way. Honestly, if he had been mistreated – then I don't know if I could have like Lord Alfred Hayes and Sean Moon. You have have won my heart more than almost anything in this entire series so far. Oh, great stuff! Yeah, I mean I can't see Mooney going into uh, the Attitude Era where The Rock would try to like humiliate him or anything. But yeah. man, I don't know. Like he could have done New Gen. He could have hung out till '97 or something. He would have done a wonderful job, I'm sure. Absolutely. I will make an argument later that in Bret Hart versus Ric Flair, the the biggest star by far is Lord Alfred Hayes. <laughs> you and I, <laughs> I think, will agree on that, but uh, we'll get there shortly. So the next matchup is another one that I really enjoyed. This is um, Coco Beware going one-on-one with Shawn Michaels shortly before Shawn Michaels will challenge British Bulldog for the IC title. Mm-hmm. You knew I had to put this on when I found it because I have spoken many times about how much I like Coco Beware. we got to watch more Shawn Michaels because he's coming into some of his really great stuff here. And I didn't even know this until I started watching it, but we get the most unique commentary team that we've heard in a long time. It is Gorilla Monsoon and Slick on commentary, and that, that alone makes it worth checking out. And no surprise, Slick is just like he's been commentating with all these other people his whole career. <laughs> he does a great job. Yeah, he could have stuck around and probably done this uh, more if uh, if they had wanted him to. Yeah. This is also good for me because it's weird to me that Shawn Michaels feels like he is in between Owen Hart and Brett. Like, he's not really a Brett's generation. Like So we put them together because of what history is going to do, but... I think seeing him with Coco and Owen is also interesting because maybe he's also closer to coming up with them than Bret Hart. They all fall relatively together, but also not 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 exactly together either. Yeah, it's an interesting – this whole generation and the different ways each of them comes up is interesting because you've got Sean, you've got Bret. Owen will be such a big deal. You've got Undertaker in that mix as well. Like just the big names are all coming from – kind of different places so it's interesting to see one thing i like best about coco beware is when he's not just a high flyer but he's high flying mixed with grounded brawling oh absolutely i mean coco is uh great in so many aspects for me it's like the explosive nature of his offense when he actually gets to do the offense like his drop kick is amazing uh, he doesn't get to hit it here, but his missile drop kick is amazing. He would hit like a, a brain buster type move on jobbers that looked like actual murder. Like just when you really let him get in there, he's just this compact guy who can just explode all over you. And I think it's just a great thing to watch. 
Yeah, that definitely so. Uh, there's one spot where Michaels gets knocked out of the ring. Coco then is on the other side of the ring with his back turned. Michaels runs in, runs across the ring, and then Coco ducks and throws him out the other side. <laughs> Sean with some great uh, heel work here, really getting into that vibe. And uh, I think you would tell some influence of, uh, of Ric Flair and that type of person. Um, yeah. So uh, he, does, he does a great job with it. You know, it's going to be one of his calling cards in the next few years. I will tell another Mr. Perfect story because this is not a jobber match, but this is almost an example of what Mr. Perfect talked about, the enhancement match. So th- this match is really slow and as far as like they make everything count. They're not doing everything in their arsenal. Yeah. And apparently one story that Mr. Perfect told Razor Ramon is that when you're in a match on TV, especially an enhancement match, don't do your whole arsenal don't hit a guy with all your moves and then kick out. Like it, that time is the greatest advertisement. You couldn't pay for a better advertisement. So hit a one move, look at the camera, like, you know, all the time be aware that this is like an ad for you. And so he also told Razor they got some of the best camera people. So if you do anything like any subtle thing, even with your face, like they're going to catch it. So like do things that really just, like kind of kind of promote you, so that was the advice that Mr. Perfect gave Razor Ramon, and I feel like especially in a WWF environment, you know that's the kind of stuff that you see, and so I think that's that's very good WWF advice. Yeah, no, that's great, and I will say Mr. Perfect and Razor Ramon are two of the best squash guys yes. WWF ever had around this time. Like just uh, when I was watching the weekly TV, and either one of them would come up, like it was always a pleasure to watch. So so props. Too perfect for passing that on, and props to both for being so good at that kind of match. Yes. Shawn Michaels does a flying reverse elbow that is not all the time in his moveset, but it was it was nicely done. I think he's experimenting with different things here still. He's, I don't know if he, he doesn't have it already, but we know he's got that match with Brett on pay-per-view coming up. So, like, yeah, that's a, that's a huge match for, for Shawn Michaels, and he's going to be wrestling Bulldog. I think they even talk about here. He's like the number one contender for the IC title. So he's on the come up and he's trying out different things. Absolutely. He's even going to win the match with that reverse thrust kick of his. He will. A sign of things to come for sure. All right. Some non-directly related, some non-in-ring related things from this match. I have to point out once again, uh, Monsoon and Slick, both baby faces, are crapping all over Coco Beware's attire. So this is a, a consistent thing that you will see all the time. And I don't know why, if it's a rib or what, but I did enjoy Slick using his degree as a doctor's style to critique that outfit. Yeah. There's going to be a beautiful reverse moment of that. But at the time, like, oh, these great big pants. My goodness. So I don't know. If, and, and Slick was actually a minister, so I don't know if he was another person who thought the great. Like, oh, my God, baggy pants. You know, they're not baggy because it's a mixture of big pants, but like Steve Urkel suspenders. So, like, it's never been done again for one reason or another. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm glad you said that, though, because it sets up another moment later with Lord Alfred Hayes. So, oh, yes. Just a beautiful, like, acknowledgement because Lord Alfred Hayes and Girl Monsoon have mocked these um, high energy outfits, but we're going to see something happen a little later in the the show. So, stay tuned deliver on that um what else in this we have sherry at ringside at one point Coco's getting beat up and she just starts like flapping at ringside like in his <laughs> face and it's just the greatest thing i ever saw i love sherry i'll never stop 
praising her. That is so awesome. That, that ah, Sherry knows how to get under the skin. Mm, indeed, she really does. Speaking of Sherry's skin, Grill Monsoon, and then he is so eager to share this fact with everyone he meets. He is once again scandalized by the tattoo on Sherry's breast. And I ask you, Monsoon, who's asking you to look at Sherry's breast so much and talk about it all the time? So I'm just going to ask that and leave it there. Those glasses, I don't know if he chooses what he sees or not. <laughs> oh, man. That's how Gorilla is with everything. Like, he'll pick something and it's just like, come on, man. But he it's Gorilla Monsoon. Down, whether it's appropriate or not. So, last point, they are now shilling Ico Pro, which will be very. Um, very common in the next few years. They're going to be just absolutely nuts about Ico Pro. So this is the first mm. I think we have encountered it. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little uh, off-putting. <laughs> it's ridiculous because I don't. It's supposed to be like some sort of like fitness shake yeah. powder. So I don't. They never even like tell you what it is practically. <laughs> so just get Ico. That's what Pro. the wrestlers are all now that they're not on steroids. Uh, yes, yes, that's what it is. Oh my gosh, it's absurd. I think SummerSlam. They might have said Crush was taking Ico Pro at SummerSlam. <laughs> if there's somebody that isn't taking Ico Pro in the next few years, according to commentary, I'll be shocked. So. Apparently, it was god-awful. I think Pritchard and them said they had just boxes and boxes that he couldn't give away to people. <laughs> I've never heard a good word about Ico Pro, so I'll, I'll believe that easily. Okay, so next up, you gave us a, a, a big return, a returning wrestler, and Shawn Michaels is out with Sherry again. There's a mirror. Uh, Shawn Michaels says, interestingly, in the little pre-recorded interview that pops up, that he is an island to himself, even as Sherry stands next to him. Right, yeah, like he, she's there smoldering behind him, and he's just like, <laughs> I'm all alone, so yeah. <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> I guess that fits his uh, personality and gimmick, though. Yeah, and it sets up what's to come, because as he's looking in the mirror, he sees a reflection that is not his. It is the man who he threw through the barbershop window the last time we saw him. Marty Jannetty has returned for revenge. And it's it's crazy because between this and 93, I swear they're going to run the same angle like three times, but yet somehow like it always gets me because here you have Janetti like he jumps over the rail, which is really not usual. He shows up behind shot and you get that great camera work that you were talking about of like Janetti appearing in the mirror behind Michaels. And then, and then you get this fight and it's just very exciting stuff. Like, this Janetti Michaels feud will be very important over the next year, and yet also not. Like, it's one of the weirdest things that you could think about. Uh, too, I think Marty has drug and behavioral issues because yes. the intention was to run this up to up through WrestleMania 9, but uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, it would have been better than uh, Tatanka. Uh, they're going to wrestle at the Rumble, so something will come of it. So. Yeah, that's what that, that was going to go through WrestleMania 9, but I think something happens with Janetti. But I think what stood out for me is that Sherry has this kind of obsession for Shawn Michaels, but she's still a heel and selfish and doesn't love him. But she's also still kind of obsessed with him, and he definitely doesn't love her. So, like, when Janetti's going to attack, she does not put herself in front of Michaels, but she also can't stand to stay completely away. So she 
walks herself close enough to defend him but not to get in the way of the attack and then that's enough for Michaels to get a hold of her arm and he pulls her in front and the Sherry is hit with that mirror it breaks on her face so interesting how all that comes about (laughs) indeed so and I gotta say I really think it was so well executed like we've talked a lot in the past about great inciting incidents and this feud is not going to play out quite properly for all the reasons you mentioned but man like this is a great way i think to follow up on that barbershop segment i mean you even got somebody going through glass again so like there's something very thematic going on here it is the pattern is great and also what it does for Shawn michaels because he threw marty janay through one and then marty janay tries to get revenge with like broken glass and then sherry's pulled in front of one so what is it going to take to get a hold of him and get revenge and how is Marty Jannetty going to do it? So it also kind of keeps us moving forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was an excellent, excellent find because we will be coming up against their matches later. Now, though, we're going all the way to Saskatoon. It's uh, October 12th, 1992. Heavyweight champion Ric Flair defending against Brett the Hitman Hart. Yeah, and this is one of the strangest ways to release uh, a WWF title change that I've ever seen because at least the Flair Savage match was like shown on prime time like you could see it there this is like some Coliseum video exclusive that surely came out like way later so I don't think you could even possibly see this title change probably until Brett already lost the title so <laughs> I, I don't even know what to make of that but uh, we do get Hayes we do get Monsoon that's a good team to have and uh, yeah we'll check out Ric Flair Versus Bret Hart here out in Canada. Yeah, I can't make sense of having a title change like this. And even after watching it, like I'll have some questions at the end, but this is Bret Hart's first title reign. So even no matter how it goes over, it still is, is, is historical in the Legacy Series. It is. I knew we couldn't skip it. I'd never seen this match, but I knew it was out there. So I'm, I'm glad we found it. And um, with Hayes and Monsoon on the call, you're going to get something special with that. And uh, I think you already alluded to that a little. Yeah, Lord Alpha Hayes starts out early saying, one thing I like about Bret Hart, he is so confident but not overconfident. He doesn't smile. He doesn't snort. He's quite expressionless on many things. But my word is he businesslike. <laughs> that, I don't know if all of that's true, but that, my God, this is a very specific take. <laughs> it was, yes, and uh, I'll just say I think everybody snorts at this time, a little yeah. white stuff. But uh, yeah, no, Alfred Hayes, like he's killing it in this match, like on another level. He is just delightful. We praised him before, and I will definitely do it again. Yeah. Uh, this is the match that I meant earlier when I said that I think the Flair Hennig thing is just to overlook him. Like, Brett cannot beat him no matter what. And, like, they cut the perfect, and he's like, he doesn't have a chance. <laughs> so. Oh, for sure. I don't know how I feel about this match overall. I think there's a lot to like in this match. I think, uh, you know, it's not perfect. But um, I don't know. There's a lot made about Ric Flair and Bret Hart. I'm like, oh, we don't have good chemistry, and we hate each other and all this stuff. But, man... I don't know. At times, I feel like they work very well together. So I don't know about you. I like this more than their uh, WCW match that other people like to praise. I thought this one uh, was more lively than that. So I don't know what you think of that. I didn't know anybody praised anything Bret Hart did in WCW, so I'm outside <laughs> the loop on that. I think that's uh, the one thing. So. 
It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. And I think my biggest problem with it, I don't know if it's Coliseum. I don't know if it's the match. The crowd is weirdly not that hype for where it is and what's going on. But it felt like to me that even when Brett won, I wasn't sure that he had won the world title. (laughs) You have to think, because I think this was just like a standard house show. Yeah. Probably nobody ever thought that Brett would actually win it here. Like, they're probably waiting for the referee to come out and, like, wave it off for some reason. So... Yeah, the, the crowd, I agree, not as hot as you would think. Yeah, in the promo, it, it'll be high, but not in the match as much. Um, I have a lot of things to mention from the booth, but one of them is we talked about Saturday Night's main event in the 80s. What we love so much is the community feel of the announcers. Like They all just live together, almost like a traveling circus or whatever. <laughs> They're talking about possibly other matches. Um, Lord Alfred Hage mentions, mentions what it would be like to have uh, Hennig versus Hart. I think Earl Monsoon says he would love to see Flair perfect. And Lord Alfred Hayes says he would buy tickets for that. Not only that, he would buy tickets for his friends, which he doesn't do often. And Gorilla says, I've heard that. And then Lord Alfred Hayes says, is it true that Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon are always running up tabs on you? Yes, that was my favorite, because Monsoon will reply, yes, Heenan and Ogreland are indeed running up tabs on me all the time. And he groups them together, and he says that Okerlund is just nice to your face, and he will stab you in the back. So, wow. so that's um, some babyface <laughs> betrayal, really, because they're supposed to stick together. So that's that's the kind of thing Monsoon would only share buried deep on a Coliseum video exclusive, I think. Yeah, there are different layers for sure. There is the TV layer, the pay per view layer, the Coliseum, and that's I like the Coliseum home video the best because. It's where you get this blend where maybe they're talking a little bit about how the people actually are, but it's so still connected to their characters that you wouldn't know it. So it's just like you're getting these little tidbits that just verify the authenticity of the thing you're watching. (laughs) It's great. I have to imagine that uh, these were recorded because, yeah, like on pay-per-view on TV, Vince McMahon, if he's not next to you, is probably like in Gorilla with the headset like glued to his head. But, man, I think once you get down to shows like this, Vince McMahon is probably sleeping in Connecticut, and you can just say whatever you want, and, uh, you know, he'll never hear it. So you get little things that you would never get otherwise. Absolutely. Uh, two more. I, the way Lord Alfred Hayes says that Bret Hart is a careful, thinking wrestler is Bret Hart doesn't step where angels fear to tread. Oh, yeah. This is a great night for Hayes. At one point, Bret Hart fires up. And Alfred Hayes, and just the way he says this, he says, he's thrashing the champion. (laughs) And, man, like, I just got a vibe off of that that I really enjoyed. Absolutely. Um, What else is he? He says, Mr. Perfect. This is a a small thing, but he talks about Mr. Perfect makes sure that Flair is in excellent condition. So, like, as a kid, when I would hear things like that, that the manager's job is also to make sure the wrestler stays in, like, good condition. You couldn't tell me that this stuff ain't, isn't real. Like, my God, Mr. Perfect has to make sure that Ric Flair stays. That's a hell of a job. <laughs> it's a great touch, absolutely. And there's just a lot of great stuff like that in here. Oh, Everett Hayes, like, you never know if he's supposed to be, like, a heel or a face. Like, he doesn't really even pay attention to that stuff. Because at one point, as sometimes he seems like a face, but sometimes he's like, well, this will just be another glorious title defense for Ric Flair. And, you know, just like... I don't know. Just he just he he is authentic to whatever he's thinking at that moment, and you have to appreciate it. I honestly, to me, he's a, he is an honest heel. <laughs> 
I can like, see that. I, I think he goes for the heel usually a little more, but he'll, he'll tell it like it is. And I think, I don't know if you're alluding to this, but Flair shoves the ref, and this is definitely, this is not defending the ref, it's just very pragmatic. Like He gets mad about Flair shoving the ref because he says, I always say, even if you're telling lies, tell the ref you like him. This is, I never, <laughs> that's a good line, but uh, I never thought of this comparison before. And they're not one-to-one, but man, Jesse Ventura and Alfred Hayes have something in common because they both have that kind of honest element to their commentary. They aren't necessarily leaning one way or the other. Obviously, Ventura is leaning a little more obviously heel, but they will just commentate on the thing they see and they will do so honestly more often than not. So, yeah, there's there's a weird connection there that I never thought of before. Yeah, they have an integrity to what they do. Yeah. Like some of the babyface announcers could learn from it. <laughs> Look at you, Vince McMahon, for sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> they're also they're doing all this stuff, but they're also telling a story because he calls Brett fair-minded. Like he, he doesn't tread in certain areas. But at the same time, Ric Flair is being cocky. He's blowing kisses to the crowd. He's saying, I got him. Perfect saying it's easy. So we're also setting up this thing where Bret Hart is the most careful man in the world, the most calculated man in the world. And Ric Flair is just taking this thing as a joke. And, you know, it's going to cost him in a way, like you said, that nobody would predict happening. No, no, this was very unexpected. So I'd say about the match, I think I probably liked it a little more than you. I think um, it's maybe maybe a little long. Maybe the crowd is not as high as you would like them to be. But uh, you do see some really great stuff, some stuff I hadn't seen before. Like at one point, uh, Bret Hart flips over a sunset flip, and Ric Flair counters it by just, like, shuffling backwards until they're all the way to the other ropes. And I'm like, I've never seen that before. That makes a lot of sense. And then they will go on and like subvert that a few minutes later. So there's some smart stuff in here. I appreciate some of the stuff they did. Yeah. And Brett has to play the style. He hates a little bit because Rick Flair will pull the straps down and chop him. And all of a sudden Bret Hart will be hulking up and not feeling a thing. <laughs> yep. As you said, nobody can fully escape kind of this uh, formula that they like yes. to do, but you know what? I feel like they make it work pretty well. Yeah. And it's a superplex and a sharpshooter, you know, and again, like this is historic. It's iconic. It's Canada. It's Bret Hart. And it is his first title ring. Bret Hart is going to defeat Ric Flair. Uh, so I don't know how what you thought of the ending. I don't know if it needed that second extra thing. Like, I almost thought it was so smart that it almost the fans didn't quite pick up on the match it ended. Right, yeah. I think the idea makes sense. Yes. Uh, the execution was not exactly what I think you would want it to be. But I, don't, I just find myself thinking, like, if you took this match uh, or this, this pairing and instead you had Survivor Series and that was in Canada in, like, maybe a bigger Canadian town or something, God, I feel like you would just have gotten a, a monumental reaction here. And instead, we chose to do it in this, like, house show out of the way, almost didn't happen, like, barely canon thing. And it's just a weird choice. Like, I don't know what the idea was behind this. It almost feels like if, if the next morning we wanted to decide it never really happened, we could. Right, yeah. Like, it could have been one of those title reigns, which has, like, the little asterisk by it. And it's like, this reign is not recognized by WWE. So, yeah, it's strange. But Bret Hart definitely is your world champion now. It feels like a great mix of bravery and cowardice on the part of the WWF to make this decision. <laughs> it it does, because on the brave side, 
if the idea was to like create this idea that any title change could happen, like on any show, you can kind of, you can see the intelligence of that. Like that could boost your house show business. Like that's, that's realistic to some extent, but on the cowardly side, yeah, it's like they were trying to like hide this title reign under the rug or something. And just, yeah. it's very bizarre. I don't know what to make of it. I'm glad you followed it up. We're going to get a Gene Arkland interview on the platform. So this gives some context. We get to hear kind of Bret Hart's first statements as a WWF world champion. Yeah, I wanted to, to put this in because I thought it was important, but also because I found it kind of odd. So I don't know what you thought of this promo. Um, Go ahead with that. I want to hear that. I want to hear your thought on that. All right, so, so he comes out and he's congratulated for his hard work. He says he was born for this moment. He says the greatest moment of his life. And then, I don't know, it seems a little strange because, like, <laughs> and this is just, like, a Bret Hart thing, and I, it's the era or something, but he, he talks, like, fondly about how his dad made him scream as a child by, like, yeah. torturing him in the wrestling training. And he's, like, very fond of, I guess, when that happened. And he also, I think, he pulls a sting a little bit, yeah. and he, like, thanks Ric Flair. <laughs> so, I don't know, just some kind of weird stuff happening in this interview. It blew my mind, the decisive thing he thinks. Especially, it's ironic for Bret Hart, but, like, thanking Ric Flair. I get the other part because, again, I don't think he, I don't think they ever planned to make him a world champion at this point. Like, this is before... Mm-hmm. Like, he was being taken seriously, but the situation called for what it called for. Like, the steroid thing... Vincent Mann was done with Ric Flair. He was kind of done with Randy Savage. So we find ourselves with Bret Hart, who doesn't yet have a gimmick. He's not, no, he's not fully like the pink and black attack and this, that, and the other. So it's almost like he's just trying to run down things that, oh, you know, like it's a great moment. So he's the humbled world champion. Like he's worked for his whole life. So it's about work ethic. And it's about all the things that the Hogan era is not, like his determination, perseverance you know, hard work, waiting eight years, but like, it's not plugged into a program, it's not even plugged into a ring that I think was planned for, so you just got this kind of like, oh, who is Bret Hart? You know, kind of moment, but he's also world champion. It's a huge transition, because I I know you've referenced this in the past, uh, maybe far in the past, but you're going from this era of these larger-than-life, almost godlike characters to someone who is very much just, like, a human being, and yes. the difference is enormous. And that's what you got to do. Like, I don't have a superpower, so here's 12 things about me, my hard work, my history, my perseverance, you know, that all together equate to me being a world champion without the superpower. Right. Like, I love Ric Flair, apparently. Uh, my dad abused me, like, all these things that you just want to share, like, all these weird things about you. Yeah, okay. I guess that's what it is. But also, it fits in a way, because, to me, Bret Hart is of the dungeon. Yeah. Like, his personality. I said this somewhere else in my notes, that every time I praise Owen Hart or Shawn Michaels for just having this natural something from the beginning, it makes me respect Bret Hart more. Oh, sure. He's a guy who's working his ass off for everything, and that, that part of him is very authentic, I think. It's weird because he, in one way he's going to be this cool pink and black, like like women are supposed to love him. So it's all, that's like kind of the Shawn Michaels type thing in a way. But there's also something that's dark about him even from the beginning. You know, that story of being the one in the – like 
it's not even that he's in the dungeon as a child because all of them were, but he's the one that loves it still and reveres it and puts it in a conversation with thanking the fans and friends and God above and family. Like, like he was born with his face like on the mat kind of being rubbed raw, but he enjoyed it and he loved it and he claimed it. And I feel like for someone, if it comes naturally to you, do you even necessarily make the choice or is the choice made for you? But Bret Hart had to choose wrestling and then he had to become good at wrestling. And he's also somehow both a guy who's been doing it since he was old enough to walk or young enough to just start walking He's also this guy that was tag team wrestler for forever in this series, and I would have sworn to you that he could never be a world champion. He looked different, he behaved different, he acted differently. So if anybody's going to take the mantle of I am not a magician, I am not a comic book character, I'm not a superhero, I don't have superpowers, all of it is earned and all of it is difficult and all of it is a love plus work ethic, I think Bret Hart is the guy to do that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they were going to have to make that transition because the same kind of larger-than-life, like, over-muscled guys weren't going to be available anymore. <clears throat> or, uh, I don't know, there's a Lex Luger conversation to be had. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, if you're going to make that transition, I agree, Bret Hart is the guy that you want to do it with. Yeah, so this is the beginning of something. And it also, it cuts deep when you think about Vince McMahon. Vincent, even Vincent Mann tells him, like, go get the, like, we, we're not going to pay you what we promised you. Go get the money from WCW while you can. Yeah. And Bret Hart is the only person, I think, maybe in the history of wrestling that you can break his heart and destroy him by, like, go get that enormous check you don't deserve. Because in Bret Hart's mind, there's nothing but Bret Hart and WWF. Like, oh, yeah. there's a radio show in Canada that he was on in 93 where he was just trashing WCW as a minor league. <laughs> so, you know, Bret Hart, this Bret Hart WWF relationship is going to hurt. It's going to be beautiful and it's going to be ugly. But, man, you see the beginning of it. WWF pushes him but doesn't necessarily have confidence in him. He's good enough to be a world champion but maybe also not, you know, doesn't have what a lot of others have. So there's this whole, there's a whole relationship that has to be built and earned. And Vince McMahon treats his world champions differently. So this is at the very same time that Brett and Vince are starting to form a personal relationship, even though Brett's been there eight years. But now all of a sudden, like Vince has time for him. So a lot's happening right here. For sure. I mean, what you were saying about Bret Hart being so linked to WWF, this is a guy who signed a 20-year yeah. contract with this company. And... You know, people say that, but really think about that. Can you imagine signing your life 20 years? You're going to be with the same people doing the same things. Like, just the, the level of, like, confidence you must have that this is, like, the right place for you has to be enormous. And then for that to fall apart, I said earlier in the show, maybe Bret Hart came by some bitterness, honestly, and I think maybe that's one aspect of it there. Yeah, well said. So Bret Hart is on the clock now. His run is is started. So I think it's yep. going to be fun to watch and see how this goes. Yep, we got five years to count down here, and uh, it's going to be an interesting ride for sure. Next up is another one. I know this one, you've got to be a big fan of this because it's the Beverly <laughs> Brothers going up against High Energy. I think this may be the two 
greatest tag teams that the WWF has right now. And uh, maybe that bar is not as high as it was in the times of the Brain Busters. But, man, these are two very good teams, very underrated. And uh, even though this match, um, you know, it's another one that's not too long. And the ending, well, I'll complain about that in a minute. But uh, for what it is, this match is very good, I think. Yeah, and you, I've been wanting to see the Beverly Brothers against a team like this, and it, I was not disappointed in what I saw. Indeed not, and they're coming up on the Steiners soon, so we're going to see some good Beverly Brothers stuff. For a team that no one talks about or hardly even remembers, they have some good stuff under their belt. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can tell that they can get it done, you can rely on them, but, you know, they just don't get the kind of push that maybe they deserve. Yeah, their gimmick is, we haven't seen a lot of their gimmick stuff, but it was this weird, like, they're brothers, but they're also sort of like a little yeah. effeminate, maybe, and maybe possibly there's a indication that they're having sex with each other. I don't know. Like, it's a very weird gimmick that didn't really do justice to how good they were, I think. Yeah, I almost brought that up on another show, but it's important <laughs> because, like, when you take characters who are, are wrestlers who are so good and you put them in something that's stupid and limiting, then all, you can't really take them out so easily. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate, but uh, at least they still get to do a lot of good stuff in their run, so we'll appreciate that at least. This is also the match where Lord Alfred Hayes said that he has he has gotten used to the high-energy wrestling attire. <laughs> <laughs> How is Alfred Hayes, like, the star of every match he commentates for? It's ridiculous. Yeah, and oh, that's not even so all of it. Cause... charming. Gorilla Monsoon just like says, oh, they, I don't know why they have the manager, and, and then he just schools Gorilla Monsoon on like they're on TV, like they've had exposure, they're winning matches, like all of that is partly due to the fact that you got a manager, like you know, promoting them and getting them there. So he just he does a whole schooling on the role of a manager in this one, and he does it very kindly and very respectfully. Yes, and to Gorilla Monsoon no less, whose whole gimmick is he's always right. So if yeah. you're able to do that, then that's something. Um, he also tells Monsoon. Oh, well, Monsoon is all over the genius's poem, of course. And Hayes said, well, I, I thought it was quite good. And, like, he'll defend <laughs> that as well. So God bless Alfred Hayes. He is such a star. Yeah. I think when Owen's getting, uh, girls complaining about Owen not making a tag when they're get, putting a beating on him. And one of them says uh, that Owen was left in the attic too long. And the other one says, or the dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a brilliant line. It's good. Like, Hayes and Mooney is, is top tier, but Hayes and Monsoon, like, they, they commentated together going back to, like, 84 or earlier, mm. I think. So they've got, they got such a strong connection as well. I love them together. This is too, too, like, when I first saw High Energy, like, I loved them as a kid. Then I saw their outfits, and, like, Coco keeps pulling up his pants. And I was like, <laughs> maybe this is not what I thought. And then, like, three matches later, Coco's, like, hulking up by pulling up his pants, and I'm just, like, just marking out and just like, oh, my God, he's doing the thing with the pants. He's about to go off, you know. <laughs> so give him enough matches, and, again, they steal your heart. And I think both of these tag teams deserve the utmost respect. Absolutely. This is a very fun match, I think. Um, Owen Hart looks great, of course. He's flying around. He's hitting those enziguris. That uh, could be a, a tribute to Tenryu right there. You've got Coco. He's got an explosive hot tag towards the end. The Beverlies are bumping around. They're doing great stuff. This is very fun. The only thing I can say against this is the ending. And I absolutely 
hate this. One of my biggest pet peeves. We are told it is a 10-minute time limit draw, and it was absolutely not 10 minutes. I looked it up, <laughs> and it was like 7 minutes and and 10 seconds or something. And I just hate when they do that. If you're going to do the time limit draw, then do it, for God's sake. So the well, ending sir. irritated me, but the match was very fun. <laughs> And that's why, too, when the bell rings, like I don't think anybody at first has a clue what's going on. Right, because you know instinctively yeah. it was not 10 minutes. And, yeah, it just rings at such a random time. So that was definitely my complaint, but everything else was very fun. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a good complaint to have. Uh, next up is Macho Man and Razor from WWF Unreleased Matches. Yes, yes, this is a match. Uh, it doesn't even have commentary. They taped this and uh, decided not to release it till like, this is something that came out on a DVD, I think, probably in the 2000s, if not later. So um, it's, a, it's a historical curiosity for sure. And I'm guessing from your tone, maybe you were not into this match. But I'll just say up front, I actually enjoyed some things about this match quite a lot. This one didn't do a lot for me. Okay. I'm still deciding some things. Like, Razor... I don't know if he took Mr. Perfect's, like, where's the heart, but I don't know if it's his look or he moves so slow, but he looks like a video game character. Like, I thought I was playing WWF Raw, the video game. <laughs> wait, wait, Razor does? He looks like that? I don't know why. I look at him and I'm thinking, oh, it's a video game character or something. I don't know. He's well, interesting. He's interesting. Talk to me about why you like the match. I don't know. With Razor, we'll have to keep an eye on him. I can see maybe what you're saying. He's very smooth at times, and I think uh, he um, he can be very deliberate at times as well. So maybe that's the aspect. But we'll we'll keep an eye on him. Um, uh, for me, like I was very excited to watch this, so I came in with a very like positive attitude about it. Um, again, it's a lot about the leg. And I appreciated that as a callback. Maybe it's a little over the top because Savage sells it quite a lot. There's one moment in this match, which I think you can either love or hate, depending on how you looked at it, where Savage is basically just hopping on one leg, but he's like motioning for Razor to come on. And Razor keeps like kicking his leg out. Savage falls down, comes up again, wants to fight more. It's a whole sequence. And for me, it really fired me up, but I could see maybe it might be too much for some people. So I like that sequence as well. Okay. All right. For me, that was, that was a high tier that elevated the match for me. I think my complaints, I don't know how closely I watched the match, but I'm starting to see some of where Randy Savage... Randy Savage looks older at times to me here than he does in WCW. I admit, I don't know if it was this match. It was some match, maybe just a combination of all we saw. But I would have to agree. It's funny, even though all the Randy stuff, Randy Savage stuff we saw, I liked. At the same time, somehow I was just like, if I were Vince McMahon, maybe I could understand why he made that decision. That Savage was not quite on the level that he used to be. I don't think yeah. that's necessarily true, but you could almost start to see why he would think that. I put almost the same note. Like, I don't agree with Vince, and I don't want to agree with Vince, but there's moments I look, and I think, my goodness. Yeah. And then Razor, like I said, I've been looking forward to Razor, but i got to keep... I don't know what it is for me, but I even made a note that uh, Razor doesn't always make me believe he can hurt someone, Like, which is weird because he's six foot seven. So he, some of his offense... I don't want. It's not Sid Justice. I don't want to say that, but it's this thing where he, like a great big guy does a great big strike, and yet I just feel like he didn't even really put anything on the guy. <laughs> I don't 
don't know if I ever got that vibe. I can maybe see a little bit what you're saying. It's very difficult, I think, to be a big man in wrestling. Because, like, yeah. if you're small, if you're Coco Beware or whatever, you can just hit the guy, you know, honestly. And probably they're, like, eight feet tall and they won't feel it. If you're a huge guy, then you really got to protect your opponent. And that's hard mm. to do. So maybe there's some aspect of that. I didn't necessarily get that vibe, but I can kind of see what you're saying. So we'll have to watch him closely as we go forward here. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it, though, because, I, like I said, I'm always excited about Razor, and I always leave. This has been my whole life with him. I don't know if he if he's doing more than I expected or less than I expected at all times. <laughs> I will say, i got to praise some of the stuff Razor did in this. Uh, he's very smooth, as I said at times. He goes after the leg a lot. At one point, he hits this drop toe hold on Savage, which was just so beautifully smooth that I got a huge flash of another wrestler. I couldn't figure out who it was for a moment, so I looked up who trained Scott Hall, and then I knew, because one of his primary trainers was Barry Windham, and I got such a smooth Barry Windham vibe off of that move and maybe some of his other stuff that I really made a strong connection there for a second. I'm so glad you said that, because I never would have had that thought, but like the same thing you're praising him for is the same thing I'm critiquing him for. And I think, again, that they're both fair because, like, it can be beautiful, but at the same time, I don't want Razor Ramon to be beautiful or smooth or any of these things. I want him to be, like, this machismo guy that just, like, beats people up and hurts people. Yeah, yeah. I think that's ter- that's very fair. I think it can be both. It can be both a blessing and a curse that he can uh, hit moves like this. So, yeah. we'll watch As more. a baby face, I'll be. Right, right. I don't know what my bias is, but I think I'll be happier with it when he's a baby face. Very likely. Um, I'm very into Razor in general, so I think I'll be higher on him, maybe higher than you. But, uh, yeah, I I did like this match. Uh, What we see at the end is kind of similar to some other stuff we've seen. Savage will try to dive out on Razor. He will land on the bad leg, and uh, he will end up getting counted out. So uh, definitely not an uncommon thing in this era. But I felt it was well executed. Watch it for yourself. See what you think. Uh, you may like it more. You may like it less. But uh, it'll be interesting because I don't think we'll ever get this match anywhere else in the WWF. Like, this just never materialized for whatever reason. So I think it was very interesting to check it out here. I think why I love to kick the leg out, stand up, kick the leg out, stand up. kick Because the, the whole feud is based on Macho versus Machismo. Yeah. And that was the, definitely a sequence where you saw that. Absolutely. That's a great point. That really shouts out something here. So uh, it's it's interesting with Savage right now because he is, uh, I believe, now split from Elizabeth. And we have talked about the sensitivity of Randy Savage, I think, in his personal life that he's shown off a lot. So if you are feeling that Randy Savage is not all that he was before and not all that maybe he will be later... I think you really have to look at that. This is not a Hulk Hogan, a Bret Hart, one of these people who can't really be affected by anything outside themselves. Like, he is a heavily affected, heavily sensitive type person at times. So, I don't know. I just want to throw that out there because uh, that could maybe account for some of what we're seeing. I I appreciate that. I said that to myself when I was watching because there's been, like, three matches where every time I look up, He's laying in a ball on the mat and not doing anything. And I'm like, my God, I don't want to see Randy Savage just forever laying in a ball on the mat. And I had that thought that, you know, this is also at the time where this divorce is happening. And like, how fired up? Like, he usually wrestles at, like, 275%. So 
like you expect that too while he's going through something like that. So I think that could possibly be part of it as well. How often did we talk? And, you know, kind of within the terms of the story, but maybe also within life, how often did we talk about the fact that he brought Elizabeth out there to, like, give him that extra fuel, to give him something to explode about, and the fact that she's not there, not at ringside, and not even in his life, which, you know, in all honesty, is probably for the best, but still, like, that's got to have an effect on a guy who made her such a big part of his life and his act, so there's something going on there, I think. Yeah, I think even looking at his body, his tan, his hair, it... As someone who has definitely had jobs or maybe currently has a job, I won't say which one, where I'm not necessarily thriving, I have learned to I have learned to look at a man who is not fully taking care of himself and see it sometimes, I think, when it's there. I'm glad you mentioned his hair because I thought it looked weird and I couldn't put my finger on it. So maybe there is something going on there. Uh, Randy Savage, just probably not at his best. I think it's a testament that he had uh, great performances every time we saw him here still, but just maybe not as great as you would maybe think, because if you're wrestling Flair, if you're wrestling Scott Hall, I think you have the potential to be putting on like all timers and there are great things in these matches, but they are not all time matches. I agree a hundred percent. Although before the episode's over, I have high praise left for Randy Savage. (laughs) He will be at his best in this uh, final segment, which we'll talk about uh, in a few minutes. Yes. My God. Okay. So, First, I have to dip back to my childhood because I started watching wrestling in 91. I started watching WWF a little later. My first favorite WWF wrestler was Shawn Michaels. So this was one of the biggest early nights of my wrestling fandom. This is Davey Boy Smith, Saturday night's main event, November 14th, 1992, defending the IC title against Shawn Michaels. Mm-hmm. First, we have a Bret Hart video. Sorry, go ahead. I was just say, first, we have a Bret Hart video. <laughs> A music video of Bret Hart that was uh, interesting in and of itself, but uh, at some point, maybe in 93, I'm going to have to talk to you about the possibility of like Lex Luger and Shawn Michaels wrestling each other and what that would have done to your um, to your, your mind as, as a young child, so we'll leave that for the future, maybe. Yes, I look forward to that, and I will have many things to say. <laughs> uh, Shawn is currently in the ring because of the Bret Hart music video, and so... British Bulldog is out, and this is a high. This is a high for British Bulldog. You know his popularity. His he just he won this big match at SummerSlam. Uh, in his mind, he's going on. He wants to be one of the top one or two baby faces in the company. So I think that's going to cause some problems in WWF at this time as well. Uh, yeah, I mean he'll be gone in '93, so clearly uh, he won't get what he wants, and he'll never get what he wants. And I don't think really he had it in him to get what he wanted. Um, either in his wrestling or certainly not in his uh, promos or anything. But, but yeah, as a high watermark, it's probably about as good as it gets for Davey Boy Smith. Yeah. I think before we get into it, uh, Bobby Heenan will shut Vince McMahon up to a long pause of just silence and kind of destroy Survivor Series and kill everything in one. So uh, Vince McMahon is just praising the hell out of Davey Boy Smith. He said he beat the best in the world because he beat the world champion, Bret Hart. And then Bobby Heenan says, so you're saying... When Michaels beats Davey, Survivor Series should be a piece of cake. And there's just like the longest silence from Vince McMahon after that. <laughs> I forgot about that line, but yes, that, um, well, that's what happens when you try to use your simplistic logic a little too heavily. Uh, someone will come along, will poke a hole in it, and you will, you will have nothing to say for a while. Yes. 
this match had some really good sequences. I'm just wondering, like, did Bret Hart lay the match out for them or <laughs> or not? <laughs> well, I think with Davy Boy, you know, it's not like only he can wrestle Bret Hart. I think many times you will see when he is in there with somebody like Bret, like Owen, like Sean, like Vader, these great all-time talents. He really has no problem rising to the level of a great match, and whether that's instinctual because he forgot everything or what, or if everyone's yeah. just always calling everything to him, you know, that's one thing or another. But uh, certainly the evidence is on the table that Davy Boy was capable of great matches as long as he had a great opponent. That's well said. No, I agree. There's no denying that. You know, you, you can't watch those matches and deny that with, with any integrity. So. Right, right. Spot on. I still remember from childhood when Shawn Michaels has that short arm, uh, scissors lock, and Davy Boy picks him up in a ball all the way from the mat to his shoulder. <laughs> and then Michaels has that look on his face. Like, it feels a little bit like he's treating Michaels like Sherry at SummerSlam uh, 92 uh, when he throws him <laughs> up on the shoulder like that. <laughs> it's a nice spot. You really have to appreciate uh, where Shawn Michaels is and his uh, wrestling ability, I think, because uh, he's come into a lot of great stuff here. The bumping and the expressions, just being a fun guy to watch, and yeah, having Davy Boy able to really throw him around at times, I think uh, was probably some of the best stuff in this match. Yeah, and uh, you're, like he's stealing in a way, like his style from Flair, from Mr. Perfect, like the bumping and stuff, yeah. but there's something that he brings that is not anybody else. Yeah, no, he's, he's really starting to make his own way here, uh, even more so. I don't know when Scott Hall told him to like kind of change his, his deal a little bit, but yeah. I think uh, maybe it's happened because I feel like we see a different Sean here than we did maybe back at WrestleMania. I like seeing guys. like Again, if I'm running a company, I want to see guys who are changing their style and trying to get better. You know, yeah. In a way, that's the difference between a Michaels and a Davey. Yeah, I mean, uh, Davey... For all his strong points, and he has them, I don't know if I ever really saw him get better after a certain point. Um, and that point was maybe pretty early on. So, yeah, you, you clearly have a very different work ethic in Sean. I mean, both Sean and Bulldog will have their problems with, you know, illicit substances and such. But clearly one guy was sort of content to just be where he was and kind of thought he would rise up the ranks. And Sean, I mean, you can't take away the hard work he did for sure. No. Nah. And then when, per, when, when the fans are hot, you get the military press, the exploding clothesline, the great energy. And that is very allied power. I don't, the allied power, <laughs> it made me feel like they should have been able to do more because this is a Lex Luger run uh, with the military press, the exploding clothesline. And so I kind of get their team at that moment. But, man, shame, shame. I know, I know very little of the allied powers. Just kind of my impression from you is that they were like sort of a nothing team when WWF had no interest in Luger, but God, just on paper, like that team always kind of excited me. Like, wow. Okay. Like it makes sense. Like, yeah. I can see those guys just running the tag division, you know, for a year or something. But, uh, I think that's not how it's going to turn out. They'll have a run. They'll get their shot. So we'll see what happens when they get there. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, some great sequences. And then I like the turnbuckle thing because, Davey's outside the ring. Michaels takes the pad off. And the pad is supposed to just sit up there, but it falls off. But <laughs> I like when you take a, a pad off like halfway through the match. And it's not the next. The next sequence is not throw the person's head into the into the, into the the exposed turnbuckle. Yes, uh, using that checkoff strategy of bringing something into play but not using it till later. Yes. That's a, a favorite little thing of mine. Absolutely. 
And so this is uh, they're gonna run the ropes, they're gonna wrestle some, and then uh, you know it's just it's just simply you get this middle of the match where Michaels is working over the back, and then later on towards the end of the match, I think it's Bulldog tries to throw Michaels into the turnbuckle, Michaels reverses, and it's turnbuckle and the, it's the back that hits the you know exposed steel, so it goes with everything that's been happening in the match, mm-hmm. and then we get a failed all the way up to the top rope superplex where Michaels is going to fall on the British Bulldog. It doesn't hurt the British Bulldog. It makes Michaels an IC champion, but it also shows what kind of heel he is. This is the Ric Flair, the MJF, the the guy that almost <laughs> would rather win it cheap than to have to work hard to win it. They got the ability to, but my God, why wrestle clean when you can just wrestle dirty and get it done? When I can just fall on somebody on their superplex, what better way to become the IC champion? Yeah, and I mean, certainly, uh, as we were saying, if you were going to make someone like Mr. Perfect or like Shawn Michaels, who is similar to Mr. Perfect in many ways, uh, a major antagonist, I think you need to rely on things like this and uh, execute them well. And this was well executed. It was some very good stuff here. It was. And, you know, it's weird to me not knowing the whole Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels rivalry that was to come. Something made me really happy live as I watched Saturday night's main event that Shawn Michaels beat the guy that beat Bret Hart. Mm-hmm. That's right. I was just going to ask how you watched this. So, of course, you watched it live by this point. That makes total sense. So that's um, that must have been a fun thing to watch for uh, for a kid like you. Yeah, because it's so weird because we knew so much and so little at the same time. So. We didn't even realize, oh, Saturday night's main event. We might as well have been watching, like, the Saturday morning show for what we knew about special. But then, so, like, I think it's a good and bad. We could watch Saturday night's main event that has a major title change and be like, oh, my God, a major title change. Or we could watch a weekend show expecting, like, a world title match and be like, oh, it's just the Nasty Boys wrestling the whole show. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing quite like when you're a new wrestling fan and you don't know like the difference between these things. Just everything seems oh, that's a beautiful feeling. It is, and it doesn't last long. So you got you got to soak it up while it's happening. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of Saturday Night's Main Event, I was gonna say like what a great last match to have on Saturday Night's Main Event before it goes away, basically forever. Like you know, that thing in the 2000s, but whatever. Unfortunately, it's not the last match. Um, Bret Hart will defend against Papa Shango after this. I'll just say, I looked for this episode of Saturday Night's Main Event, but I'm kind of glad I didn't find it, because the other two matches are Bret versus Shango and Ultimate Warrior and Savage versus Money, Inc., and I think I think I'm good on both of those, so... Yeah, I, th- I think I agree with you. Like, <laughs> the world title match is so stupid that, you know, Bobby Heenan, I think, had to catch himself saying something like, Oh, if so and so wins, they'll be wrestling Bret Hart, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, unless Papa Shango wins, wins yep, the world yep. title." <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Papa Shango, is he actually at Survivor Series? I'm starting to wonder if we're ever going to even see this guy. Um, that would be awesome if we somehow never do. Just so weird. Like he's very prominent, and you don't even see him in the whole series. <laughs> just, just jogging to the ring at WrestleMania, and then putting a curse on. He does not wrestle at Survivor Series. I think we'll entirely avoid any Papa Shango matches, which is the best news I've heard in a while. He's got to be in the Royal Rumble, right? Is he gone by then? Maybe not. Maybe uh, he's I there. Know. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he was just gone already. I just feel like I can see him like just hanging over a top rope, standing around, choking somebody or something. <laughs> Lady in my mind, his hat's on, too, so this might just be, I'm, this might all be fake. <laughs> 
I mean, it's easy to imagine, unfortunately, but I guess we'll find out when we get there. The thing that blew my mind is I put the last link off towards the end because you only got one more left, and then it was over 30 minutes. So I was like, oops, <laughs> I should not have waited this long. But then, my God, this is some of the best 30 minutes of watching. If your fandom's anything like mine, this is going to be some of the best things you've ever watched and especially when you know that it's thrown together at the last minute because they got to make up for the warrior leaving. Yes. Oh, man. I'm so glad we could include this whole – it's a beautiful link. I got to send all my love to whoever put this together because it's, it's an episode of primetime, and it's just the host segments, and it is this beautiful 30-minute saga spread out over the two hours or whatever primetime was of Randy Savage trying to find a new partner – for Survivor Series because the Warrior left. And if you know what's coming, you know what will happen. But just, this must have been so unexpected at the time. I don't. Were you able to watch Primetime as a kid? I always meant to ask you that. I think I saw this, and I hate to say this out loud, but this is the truth. I thought, like, it blew my mind that Randy Savage was asking such a low-level person to, to take <laughs> the place of the Ultimate Warrior in the main event. I mean, from what... From when you started watching, that's very understandable. But I think uh, with with wiser eyes, we can see the value of this. <laughs> oh, this is this is so beautiful. Like, I've got one, two, three, about four or five pages of this. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good. We have almost half an hour left to cover it, so we'll use as much of that as we like. Um, yeah. This is a great segment here. This, of course, is Hillbilly Jim, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Vince McMahon, Bobby Heenan, and Mr. Perfect at the table. What a dire uh, baby face. To me, even table. in the beginning, uh, there's a mention of Warrior you know, leaving Heenan and Perfect share a glance. Uh, Heenan goes for a glass to toast Perfect, and Perfect's about to toast him, but like the whole night, Mr. Perfect's kind of looking the other yeah, way, like, like his mind. Like He's not as charged up anymore as Bobby Heenan is. Like There is even... The slight, before Savage even starts this trouble, it seems like they're not 100% on the same page like they used to be. Yeah, it's because this is actually not the first time anything was brought up on primetime. Some of the talking points used here have been mentioned before. So I have to imagine eventually they were hoping to do something with this. I, obviously, it wasn't this, but it worked out very well. There's actually some nice foreshadowing with this uh, relationship finally breaking apart. Yes. So this is just the beginning of it. It blew my mind, too, even though I've seen this before, that Randy Savage is going to drop this bomb at the beginning of the show and just leave them to have a whole show to host. <laughs> and you want to talk, we're going to see Macho versus Machismo again, too, with with because with, Razor's going to be up there. Yeah. Uh, Macho's going to be up there. And, yeah, there's good kinds of uh, uh, Macho and there's bad kinds. And I think the heels are going to show us. The horrible kinds of machos, they are not even good, like, they're not even helping themselves. But, like, the guts or the something that it takes to tell Bobby Heenan and Mr. Perfect that you're choosing Mr. Perfect. Like, you are setting yourself up to be mocked on national television for two hours, and that's likely the thing that's going to happen. And Savage, who's very paranoid and very sensitive, is also aware that that might happen, and yet he is going to come on at the beginning of the show and offer Mr. Perfect the opportunity to be his partner. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For him to come out um, and, uh, and, and and start this, start the show, 
by asking Mr. Perfect to step up to return to the ring and to replace the Warriors, his partner, uh, which shocks Perfect. At first he says he's nonsense, but Savage, he, he makes the case. He says, I don't like you, but I respect you as a wrestler, and I think you're being held back uh, by Bobby Keaton being afraid that you're going to run over Ric Flair and everybody else. And it, it's just a great setup. At the start of the show, I love the the whole format of this, the execution, the p- different people coming in via satellite, the conversations in between those. Just uh, the format of this is wonderful, and I truly appreciate this whole episode. What a great thread to run through an episode. Everybody's amazing. You know, you have agents, you have people booking, but you don't have, you know, writers writing every line. And I think one of the counterintuitive things, because – you would think that somebody might be able to say, I like it better without all the writers because it's more organic and authentic. But then the, the others could, could very rightly say, I like it better with the writers because you can set things up and, you know, everything can unfold in a way that plays out correctly. The weird thing about this is it's wild. And once in a while, I think they say one or two lines that might not help the flow of the thing. But there are times that it somehow flows better and and is even contained better without the writing that goes with it. So it's just, it's baffling how many ways it can be better like it is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the perfect combination to me is that obviously you need people to book, like, the overarching um, story. You yep. can't exist without that. But by God, especially if you have people who can handle it, let them go out and use their own words and say what they want to say and bring the story along that way. Like that's the perfect combination to me. Yeah. I'm looking at the comments. One person says, do you see how everyone did their parts? Right. Which is just such an interesting <laughs> thing for such a, like a, a explosive segment for that to be your comment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got Bobby Heenan, Mr. Perfect, Randy Savage, Razor Ramon, Ric Flair, all these guys. I mean, what a collection of names in the first place. And they are just like, freewheeling over half an hour like they know where they're going to end up but they they're on this journey together <laughs> through conversation and and it's just a pleasure to watch it's set up perfectly from the beginning uh Vincent Mann says he's going to have to be very choosy Bobby Hinn says he can't be too choosy so you know they're already mocking him before he's made his decision Randy Savage talks in metaphors all the time, says so driving everybody crazy because he won't say straight out what he's trying to say. <laughs> but also, I understand, too, like the idea we've talked about him being a highly sensitive person. Like, I think in part you talk in metaphors because you're always trying to de- defend what might come because you've already thought ahead of what might come by you saying the thing that you're going to say. So he says there's a time in life you have to take a chance. Not everything in life is just right down the four lane highway. And they're all just like, well, you just like say who your partner is. <laughs> uh, it's great. And let us not forget that Randy Savage lives uh, south of Mars and north of hell. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's going to bring some of that space element to his conversation, naturally. Absolutely. I think the first clear line we get is, or closer, is he knows my opponents way better than I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good line. It's a good build up to reveal who he's going to ask, and uh, it's very well done. He says uh, he could even be my perfect tag partner, and even saying that is so obvious who it is, but nobody at the table will dare say it because it does not make enough sense. You don't want to be the idiot saying, like, you're choosing uh, uh, Ric Flair's manager and and Bobby Heenan's friend over here. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, yeah, like, you wouldn't want to make that assumption, because, uh, if you're wrong, Randy Savage will probably get pissed at you and maybe attack you, so. Yeah, and then Vincent Man says, well, who do you mean? Spell it out. And he finally says, Mr. Perfect. And Randy Savage says, you can refuse me right now. That's true. Um, surviving is the key. Mm, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's great the way he makes the case here initially for Perfect to, uh, to join his team. Yeah, all of that segment one. And something else I noticed before I knew it was a theme. Hillbilly Jim says, he hasn't wrestled in so long he's a manager. And the minute he says the word manager, the look on Mr. Perfect's face, and this is going to be a theme that's going to run through it. His, he's just a fill in the blank with whatever you want to. And if they counted how many, if Bobby Heenan would stop looking at Vince McMahon or across the table and look how many times Mr. Perfect looks away at the statements he's making, we might not get into the mess that we're in, like in segment eight uh, later in the show. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's a slow burn over this whole show of Mr. Perfect hearing things he doesn't like and uh, getting feelings that he doesn't like. And, uh, and it's great. It's funny. Even if Mr. Perfect wasn't able to get back in the ring, um, you'd think he'd still have all these same reactions. Like, I don't think the pride of that character, a guy who calls himself Mr. Perfect, basically he's sitting around where everybody talks about how imperfect he is now. Like he's going to take it personally. Oh my God. If you go back when Vince, he went to Vince McMahon's house to join the WWF, they're going over all these gimmicks. Like, you could be Hurricane Hennig, you know, things like that. And Vince McMahon always asked wrestlers, what do they like to do other than wrestling? And the way Mr. Perfect came about is, like, when they asked him that question, he liked to hunt, he liked to fish, he likes to play every sport, and he's the best at all these things. They come naturally to him. He can be anybody in them, and he's just so confident and perfect in everything that he does. So that's how the Mr. Perfect character came about. And you think about an ego like that and someone who wants to say face like that and the things they keep saying over and over on live TV, like it's just not going to end up any way except how it does. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, thank God that they had that conversation because I don't need any hurricane headache <laughs> in my life. Yes. Oh, my gosh. In segment two, I think if I'm if I'm reading my quote in the right context, I think Bobby Heenan is making a joke the perfect that. I can team up with them and we can have two managers. And so then he's like putting himself and Mr. Perfect on the same like wrestling level or the same. Uh, yeah, they, they both could team up with Savage. That's what it was. They, we both could team up with Randy Savage and he could wrestle with two managers as, as, a, as a joke. And somehow Mr. Perfect didn't find it funny. <laughs> this, is, this is classic Bobby Heenan. And I, he cannot get lost in this conversation because he's no. as good or better than anybody on this whole program, the way this is, it's classic Keenan to try to make something true just by like repeating it. And over and over again, he will try to make it true that Mr. Perfect feels the same way he does. And he will deny all signs to the contrary until he cannot do so anymore. Absolutely. You can put whoever you want on level one, but I got Savage and Heenan are definitely on Savage on level one. Oh, absolutely. They are top, top tier. I don't know if anybody ever watched Andy Griffith, but Vince McMahon is doing Andy Griffith rhetoric uh, in segment, either segment two or three. He's like, well, I know you're not even giving this any thought, Henning, but, and then starts asking. <laughs> I did not connect that to an Andy Griffith thing, but I can totally do so now. So thank you for making that connection. 
And it's kinda I think it's how Vince likes to view his characters, because Andy is Andy is smarter or just more savvy or just but he's he comes with this ah shucks thing and and it starts to work because that that rhetoric is kind of what opens up. Perfect's not even talking back at the beginning, but now they're listening and the conversation's starting. And Hillbilly Jim's going to be very good at. I noticed too that Hillbilly Jim does all of the uh, work on that side of the table. They gave Hacksaw like one line that he says at the beginning of every segment, like oh, "I thought they were like this, and now like a puzzle, they're falling apart." And that's the only thing I think he contributes, <laughs> which is great. Yes, I will say um, Hillbilly Jim, far from my favorite wrestler, but uh, he has his moments. Like uh, he's not on the the tier of some of these others, but um, right. yes, he is. He is outpacing Jim Duggan by a wide margin here. Absolutely, uh, Bobby Heenan can't stop himself. Like you're a great broadcaster. You're on prime time with me, you know. So the things he's complimenting him later <laughs> that becomes he's a manager. He's just well, not just a manager. <laughs> uh, too many words. Oh, is anyone in wrestling better than Heenan at that kind of thing? And you start to say one thing and then you say another thing. Like, oh, it's the Bobby Heenan that could have been on any television show, you know, anywhere. And just, um, man, he's so good. Yeah. In segment four, uh, Hillbilly Jim says, maybe he wants to survive and this is his best chance talking about Savage. Bobby Heenan says, but he can come up with someone better than perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what he means. Yes. But the way he says it, and perfect's already got that look on his face, and it's just, oh, wow. Sometimes when things start going wrong, just everything that happens seems to make it more wrong, and they they have been set on this path already where it's going to be hard to draw back from. Absolutely. So we're at the part we're going to bring on Flair and Razor, and I think we're going to see the dark side of Machismo because this is not the best, um, uh, the best rhetorical moves that they're going to make. Indeed not. Although I have to say, Ric Flair showing up in a suit uh, made my heart happy. He doesn't get to wear yeah, like, a suit very much in the WWF. There's somewhere in Charlotte where together where Ric Flair's wearing a suit and Razor's wearing his wrestling outfit. <laughs> Which which seems seems about right, you know. It, like. seems about right. it, it, it passes. <laughs> uh, Razor straight into it. You work for us. I understand you used to be someone. Uh, we pay you good. You do what we tell you. Razor Ramon, he came in with your uh, mindset as a child here, where he kind of treated perfect, like he was not. Uh, he was just this low-ranking person. Um, I think in his mind, like within the character standpoint, you have to think like if Perfect joined him. Like, he wouldn't even uh, think he was a threat, so there's some interesting stuff there. Yeah, he really thinks, I think Razor almost wants it to happen, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, choose the manager, team up with a manager who used to be somebody. And I like the fact that the, because he wasn't there, he has no idea what perfect was. He's like, I hear you used to be somebody, so that's also a nice touch. Right, and it's so, it's perfect for him that he's so dismissive of this, like, I think Scott all just nails the Razor Ramon character. You know, he's doing kind of the accent and that's whatever, but just like it fits so well with him. He really made it work perfectly. Yeah. Flair has some interesting comments about uh, this. He says some people would go to no end to create an entertainment environment. Hillbilly Jim, Hacksaw, Vince McMahon. The reason you're behind the table is because you find things like this humorous. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good line. He says he does the wrestling. You know, they all got their roles. 
and then uh, Bobby tells him to call him because earlier Perfect got a phone call and and, and Bobby he assumes it was Flair so he's like call him again I didn't get a chance to talk and Flair's like I didn't call. Oh, <laughs> uh, there's a rich history of the phone on prime time being a source of, uh, of great mystery and excitement. So it's a great way to uh, use that here to put that into play. I love the whole theme. We're going to a whole theme about shadows. Who's in whose shadow and all of this. <laughs> and I think it starts early. Uh, Rick Flair says, um, let's see. We walk down the aisle together instead of being in the shadows, but then he follows it up like me in front and him behind me. <laughs> And they can't stop themselves. Yeah. And this is the ugly side. You know, this is where the babyface brigade maybe uh, makes a point is that heels like when they team up is beautiful. But, man, when they turn ugly on each other, like it's um, they can't really stop themselves sometimes. Yes, you're so right. Visit man says, is Ric Flair a better wrestler than you? And perfect says one word. No. <laughs> so. I love how little we get. They pull a little bit more out of Mr. Perfect throughout the night. A little bit and a little bit and a little bit. Oh, a lesser wrestler would have never been able to pull off this slow turnaround that Perfect does over the course of this whole show. Yeah. Because it is like you all – in one way you know it has to be happening because it wouldn't spend this much time on it. But at the same time, how do you not – Number one, you can't even imagine getting a yes, but then, like, are you going to trust him at Survivor Series? So it's an interesting night. You know, I don't know who the winner is at the end of the night in that way. Yeah. The fact – if it had come easily, it would have ruined it. So the fact <laughs> that it comes so hard is great. They almost have to do, like, a, a 12 Angry Men on this guy to, like, turn him <laughs> around to where he finally ends up where he should be. Yeah, Bobby Heenan starts cracking. He's like, okay, you can walk in front. Damn, it's not that important who walks in front. (laughs) Oh, Heenan. Bobby Heenan, man, when he starts to panic, bad things are going to happen, and they're probably going to happen to Bobby Heenan. Like, oh, what a a sense. Talk about your sensitive personalities. You know, whenever things are not going his way, he's going to crack, and he's going to do something that he regrets. But he's going to have to say that he doesn't regret it. And it's a torturous existence sometimes. Yeah. And across the table, you got people who are the furthest thing from highly sensitive. So, <laughs> you <know. laughs> yeah, a group of instigators sitting at the table here and just uh, just wheedling away at him. Yes. And then with perfect one word becomes two words. Vincent Mann says, are you better than Razor? And he says, of course. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful thing this is great it's one of the last uh, episodes of primetime too so like they're going out in a high note here yeah and it's a shame because oh yeah you just can't beat that and like today there was somewhere in the last five to five hundred years of me not watching wwe that i saw where they do like these six hour people on set together before a pay-per-view and yeah. i was like oh my god is this the thing that i've been wanting them to do again for 30 years and then i turned it on and it's like sports center or something and it's like nah this is not what i wanted it's yeah avoid (laughs) it's i like the chaos of it you know i I, I like there's something about the formal setting with the chaotic characters that just like where do you get something like that and that's again if wwf is ever better than everything it's because it's something that only wwf can be so anytime they're like let's be someone else they've already lost right right 
Yeah, no, I mean, bringing these huge characters to this kind of setting was the perfect thing to do, um, so to speak, and it just works out so well here. You've got to appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, segment six, or the next one up, is just is a shorter one, but Vince is hypothetically, you can't blame Mr. Perfect if he joined him. Uh, Mr. Perfect still talking about I walk in no man's shadow. Bobby Heenan setting up things to come, says, stop, stop. Uh, get me some water. So there's no water in this cup, so we need to get some water for the table. Um, and then Hillbilly Jim says, uh, he says, you was a has-been at one point. Uh, perfect. And again, it reminds me of like Andy gathering the whole town, and they're just all speculating on something. And most of them are just acting out of their like whatever truth they're seeing, but all like Andy standing in the background orchestrating things, and that is definitely the Vince McMahon at the table character. Sure, and you got your Barney Five, Hillbilly Jim, I guess. So yes. And who is that? Goober is the that that's gotta be. <laughs> that's that's Duggan. So. Yes. Uh, we go back to Sarasota, Florida, to Savage. Uh, Savage is in a state of confusion. Uh, maybe he was wrong. Maybe he made a bad decision. Maybe Razor scares perfect. Maybe Flair's shadow is cold, and he tried to bring him into the hot spotlight. Randy Savage, man, is just top notch too. Yeah, his his rhetoric is very much on point. He is top tier here. And I just gotta say, I love how much they. You know, God knows they probably weren't in these places, but just making it out like they're in different like cities. And, yeah. like, the different backgrounds they use. And just the whole presentation of it is so great. It is so great. And you really believe it. Like, it's absurd. Sure. Like I said, Razor's in his trunks and Flair's in his suit and they're in Charlotte. But you believe it because it's just so good. And so the characters are so invested. Uh, Mr. Purvis stands up at this point, which, again, is another, like, new thing happening. He says he does have the guts. Uh, he'll consider the offer. And Bobby Heen immediately says, you're not going to consider anything. Mm, yep. Yep. This is every time Heenan breaks up with a client or a friend, he always makes this mistake of trying too hard to control the situation. He actually causes the thing that he's trying to avoid. Oh, man. And you, you can tell it's getting close. Oh, yeah. He's reaching the breaking point. Oh, my Another, gosh. Oh, go ahead. This is just like maybe Bobby Heenan's last truly great character moment because, I mean, he's going to get thrown out, and then that's like iconic in its own way. But in 93. They're not going to have that much for him to do. So for him to have this whole thing here, like, this is so beautiful. This is like Bobby Heenan long form special edition, like the greatest thing that you could see with this guy at this point. Absolutely. It could be 87, 88. It doesn't matter. Bobby Heenan is timeless. Absolutely. Razor Ramon comes on and says, calm down, shut up. And off screen, the minute he says, you hear Bobby Heenan whisper, he didn't mean shut up. Incredible. Razor says, you've been sitting on your soft behind. You haven't – oh, because Henning says that, I think, at one point that he could take on all three or something like that. Yes, and yes. Razor says, you've been sitting on your soft behind. You haven't wrestled three in one year. Yeah, yeah. He hasn't wrestled one in one year. So. Flair thinks that Henning has an inflated ego from spending time with him. Um, you really, really realize that Flair should appreciate Arn Anderson because you get the idea that – when they first met, he's like, I'm better than you, and you're always going to be worse. And Arn's like, yep, I agree. And then the horseman was born. <laughs> but <laughs> you don't get that twice in one life. <laughs> oh, indeed. Perfectly said. We get this whole thing about uh, are you a man or a baby from Randy Savage because Rick Flair says Mr. Perfect was his baby. I forgot about that part. <laughs> and so 
Savage is like, are you a man or are you a baby? And that's how we leave, I think, before we come back to the last uh, segment of the show. Oh, absolutely. And this last segment, that's that's really something. So we're, we're, we're close on time. So tell us all about it, and then we'll wrap it up here. Okay, so Bobby Heenan is kind of putting things back in order. We all have roles. I take... I take orders from Flair. You take orders from Flair and me. <laughs> so, uh, again, not helping yourself. Um, and he says, uh, Henning, if you watch Henning's face, it's not a surprise. It's been building up all night. And he just says, I'm sick of everyone uh, making decisions for me. I accept. And what does Bobby Heenan do, Ms. Fan? I'll let you, I'll let you take this away. Bobby Heenan makes that classic Bobby Heenan mistake. He did it to Andre. He did it to many people over the years. He will slap Mr. Perfect as he tries to talk him down. Maybe he's just trying to slap some sense into him. We'll never know because Mr. Perfect grabs him by the collar, threatens him. Bobby Heenan starts begging for his life. He begs him to stay in the group. He begs him not to do anything that he'll regret. Mr. Perfect takes that that uh, glass of water, that pitcher of water, and pours it all over Bobby Heenan's head, and they are done with each other, and Mr. Perfect is coming back to the ring. It's so good. Bobby Heenan, Bobby Heenan rises up in desperation, and he shrinks in desperation. Mm. And he, he's on one knee, then he's on both knees, and then he becomes the wet weasel, which is just another great moment. Ah, oh, so good. I do. I forgot they do come back one more time. <laughs> when they come back, Perfect's got the whole side of the table to himself. Right. I love that Bobby Heenan is gone after this. Like, he wasn't physically hurt, but he was embarrassed, which is much worse than being physically hurt for Bobby Heenan. And uh, we'll see uh, We'll see more come out of that Heenan-Perfect split as we go along. But we do also get Flair and Razor again, and they will be pissed. And Flair will rip off his jacket, and he will say, you had everything, you had me he freaks out. He's calling him Hennig. Uh, it's a great finale here to this whole beautiful, beautiful segment. Yeah, it's Hennig. You're not perfect anymore. Flair also says, I gave you life after wrestling, which is a great line also because Perfect's going to be the guy who's going to end Rick Flair's career. Yeah, yeah, he will no longer be Mr. WWF. It's unbelievable. Like, just, this is done so well. Uh, you can't beat this kind of stuff. We covered a Gorilla Monsoon Bobby Heenan segment earlier in the series, you know, with the whole, uh, I think, Brooklyn Brawler stuff. And it's just, I don't know how you, you don't get lost in this stuff in the best way. To me, this is this peak storytelling, people that know to their bones what they're supposed to be doing. And you just tell them where you're going and you let loose and let them do it. Yeah. And I, I want pro wrestling I can get lost in, man. I, and I got lost in that segment. Absolutely. It's wonderful. I hope you had the time to watch it all. It's probably the most important thing you should watch on this whole set that we talked about. So check it out. I put the link on uh, Twitter and uh, in the forums. So please check it out. We're very close on time here. So I'm going to wrap up unless you got something else to say. My friend Mystic. I'm good. All right. Excellent. In two weeks, we'll be back with Survivor Series 1992. Going to be some big stuff going on there. Uh, until then, thank you for listening. Thanks for uh, giving us feedback. You can do that also on Twitter. I'm at SpectralGent. Give me a shout. Give me a follow. And on LOPForums.com. Also check out WrestlingHeadlines.com and all the other great programs on LOP Radio, our podcast network. So that is all that we have for today in two weeks, Survivor Series 1992. Hope you will join us. Until then, Mystic, take us home. 
Until next time, don't let the legacy be dictated to you. Rewatch, revisit, rewrite. I saw an undiscovered creature climbing on the mountainside. You know that no one else believed me. And white stripes and salted tears I knew that these were just its cautionary features Keep telling myself nothing to fear It's just an undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one that's scared It's just an undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one that's scared The undiscovered creature